Good morning, everyone. We're ready to begin. Yes, thank you, Brandon, uh, for making that presentation. I hope that sweater is something we purchased from the county, all those hard-earned dollars you made. All right, now we'll have the invocation from Will Rucker. Spirit of grace, God of the heavens and earth, as we gather on this day, let us begin with gratitude in our hearts. Gratitude for each other, for this moment, and for the future that awaits. As we gather today, endeavoring to foster a more vibrant and compassionate community, we are reminded of the unique confluence of events that grace our city. The rain that has visited us speaks to the renewal and nurturing of our land, reminding us of our shared responsibility to care for the environment and the community we are privileged to serve. This Sunday, Las Vegas will proudly host the Super Bowl, a testament to our city's resilience, to our spirit and our capacity to bring together people from all walks of life. We are also immersed in the observance of Black History Month. This is a time to honor the profound contributions, the struggles, and the triumphs of African Americans throughout our nation's history. Black History Month is an opportunity to reflect on the journey towards equality and to commit ourselves anew to the work of justice and inclusivity for all. So spirit and ancestors, we ask that you help us to find grace and grievances, tenderness and tensions, and to hear with our hearts as we move forward together in love. In the name of all that is good, all that is sacred, human, and divine, in the name of love we offer this prayer. Amen. I pledge allegiance to the flag of the United States of America and to the republic for which it stands, one nation, under God, indivisible, with liberty and justice for all. Good morning. This morning we have a number of recognitions uh, in honor of Black History Month. But to start out, I would like to recognize uh, Bubba Knight from the legendary Gladys Knights and the Pips. Gonna sing, somebody's gonna, you're going to sing the oh, okay, Black National Anthem, please. Okay, this mic. Good morning, everybody. <laughs> <laughs> thank you so much. And I would like to thank Mr. Uh, Ross Miller and all of his staff and all who invited us to celebrate this Black History Month celebration. Thank you so much for this invitation. Uh, I'm presently uh, retired from Gladys Knight and the Pips, uh, but I would like to just give you a little bit of history. Uh, if you saw the Grammys night before last, my sister Gladys Knight, my little sister, won a Pioneer Award on the Grammys. And she's not here right now, so please give us some love. 
Next time I talk to her, I'll tell her you guys did a standing ovation in the whole shot. Yeah. And right now, I would just like to recognize uh, Tom Michelle and David Robinson. They are presenting a show called The Follies at the Aliante, April 14th, April the 11th through the 14th. And I, I commend them because they're giving us entertainers an opportunity to perform and show our talents. And so give them a round of applause. It's the folly. Thank you. I was asked, I was asked by uh, Commissioner uh, Ross Miller to sing the Black National Anthem and a little bit of history about the Black uh, National Anthem. John Johnson, who was a principal at a school and also a member of the NAACP, wrote a poem called Lift Every Voice and Sing. His brother, James Johnson, composed the music to Lift Every Voice and Sing. Mr. John Johnson had 500 of his students to sing Lift Every Voice and Sing to celebrate President Abraham Lincoln's birthday. From that point on, it was considered the Black National Anthem. And tonight, that was back in the 1900s when he wrote and James put the music to this song. And tonight, 2024, 20, oh yeah, tonight, this morning, I'm a show, <laughs> look, that's, that's look, come on now. Y'all know, know what's in my blood. <laughs> y'all know what's in my blood. So what I'm going to do, I've been asked to sing the Black National Anthem. And if you, should, if you will all rise for the Black National Anthem, and if you want to be honorary pips, you can sing along with me. <laughs> Lift every voice and sing. Till earth and heaven ring, ring with the harmonies of liberty. Let our rejoicing rise high as the listening skies. Let it resound. Flowed as the rolling sea. Sing a song full of the faith that the dark path has taught us. Sing a song full of the hope that the present has brought us. Cut it out, Pips. Facing the rising sun, hold it, hold it, sun, of our new day begun. Let us march on till victory is won. Here go a big ending. 
Let it march on. This is the begin till victory is won. Hold it, hold it, hold it, hold it. Thank you. God bless us all. God bless you all. Okay, okay. Thank you so much, Mr. Knight. Um, definitely inspired us and, and get us some energy, too. So thank you. Very cool today. Also, uh, Commissioner McCurdy is going to say a few words about Mr. Bre Mr. Summers. Uh, thank you, Mr. Chairman. Again, we want to thank, uh, when we think of, of the violin, classical music usually comes to mind. Uh, but Brandon's rendition of pop, hip-hop, and contemporary music will make your revisit that notion. Brandon is a Las Vegas native who began playing the violin at the age of six. He attended Fort Valley State where he obtained his BA in liberal studies and he currently is an educator in the Clark County School District. Again, we thank him for joining us this morning and uh, bringing in the energy and again, help us please thank Brandon Summers uh, for sharing this time with us today. All right, and uh, thank you, uh, Mr. Knight. And also, uh, before we get started today, uh, we lost a community giant just recently. Uh, we laid him to rest uh, this weekend. Someone who had a profound impact on myself, uh, many staff in this building, and so many of our young men uh, across the Southern Nevada region. Mr. Michael Garrett was someone who uh, taught many of us how to tie bow ties. So if you see a few of us wearing bow ties today, it's because of him. Uh, he taught us, you know, proper etiquette. He taught, taught us how to uh, represent ourselves, uh, whether we're in a room full of few people or many. And uh, we're going to miss him a lot. And just this weekend, um, so many people were, were hurting, uh, but we got to celebrate his life. So I would ask uh, that members uh, of this chamber join me in a moment of silence before we kick off our Black History Month program. Thank you. Thank you so much. All right, Mr. Chiller, how are you going to top all that? Uh, <laughs> item one is to commemorate Black History Month. The Board of County Commissioners will acknowledge and honor exceptional citizens and organizations in, in Clark County. Commissioner Kirkpatrick. Uh, thank you, um, Mr. Manager. Um, so this is uh, a special day because we like to recognize folks throughout our community that um, were the pioneers and that they bring uh, a little bit of history, but also not forgetting those that inspire us and inspire the future to go forward. So this year, our, um, our theme is um, to highlight those that have um, inspire, elevated, and educated, and that is important to the future of our community. So you'll see today that we'll have several folks come up um, that, have, that fit one of those bills. 
Um, but before we get started with that, we have a really special um, piece. We always try to do this up and change it up all the time. And the violin was amazing this morning, but now we have a second uh, component, which be a, will be a lasting piece. Uh, we have a special guest, it's Dre Wilmore. He's an internationally recognized and published painter, best known for his large scale murals, musical themed abstracts, canvases, and portraits of women. His work has been exhibited at the Barrick Museum of UNLV and is a part of the permanent collection of the Nevada State College and the West Las Vegas Art Center. Uh, Mr. Wilmore helped cultivate the culture zone downtown. It is now a destination that's filled with galleries, coffee shops, boutiques, and restaurants. So again, another pioneer helping us recognize the art and the culture of our community. We're excited to have him here today. He is going to be painting uh, something for all of us. And so after, at one point during the meeting, he will tell us when he's finished, it'll be a live painting, and then we'll display it in the rotunda for Black History Month. So we wanna give him a big round of applause. But also knowing that he's gonna leave something behind for Clark County for our future. So um, there's gonna be a special um, video because we have so many amazing people. We tried to streamline it a little because we know that many of you have other places to be. Uh, but so um, there's gonna be a video that's gonna be played. And again, it's about those who inspire, educate and elevate others here in Clark County. And we have a great list of folks. You can see their pictures out in front. Um, and for the award ease, uh, when we call your name uh, in the video, you'll go right up to where all of our great staff is standing and you will get a stole, which represents royalty, um, because we believe that's really what you're about. And then uh, another gift. And as all of you come up here, uh, we will then um, take one big picture, um, give people uh, 10 seconds to speak if they have anything they really want to tell us, maybe 30 but uh, seconds, but uh, we really just want to highlight all that you do in our community and on behalf of all of the Clark County Commissioners, we thank you and we're going to go ahead and give you a round of applause before we start the video. Okay, we're going to go ahead and get started. with some sound. It's great to celebrate Black History Month. I'd like to take a moment and recognize Officer Quincy Gibbons of LVMPD's Spring Valley Area Command. Quincy is an officer with our Area Command's community-oriented policing team, where he specializes in building community trust and partnerships. He runs the Spring Valley Dream Program, which enables youth in our community to discover the best path in life. In this program, he has worked hard to improve the everyday lives of over 150 kids in Clark County. Quincy has been a joy to work with at various events we host together with Spring Valley, and we are fortunate for his public service to our community. Thank you, Q. I am pleased to also recognize Raymond Green. Raymond is a Las Vegas native, born and raised in the historic West Side. He is a small business owner in District F, owning and operating Barbering Galo at 8090 Blue Diamond Road, Suite 210. Raymond has partnered with the Southern Nevada Health District's Barbershop Health Outreach Program, which aims to improve physical health outcomes for black men and women. In his role, Raymond promotes healthy quality of life to the community, including practicing preventative measures to reduce the risk for chronic conditions. Thank you, Raymond, for your ongoing commitment to our community. You are invaluable to Clark County. 
Black History Month. This year, the theme is Inspire, Educate, and Elevate. And we are so excited to announce our three awardees. I'm going to start with Miss Takia Williams. Miss Williams is a valued member of Manch Elementary School. She's known around the campus for not only being an amazing teacher, but a true advocate for our students. The relationships she's built with her students and parents is because Mrs. Williams will knock down any wall, bust any ceiling to make sure her students are successful, not only at school, but in life in general. She goes out of her way to go all the way across town to ensure that she's in that classroom every single day because she knows that those kids are counting on her. Not too far down the street, we have the principal, Doug Taylor. Doug Taylor is a 17-year educator in the Clark County and he's a three-year school principal, and he actually came from the Mansion Loman area, and then he got to go be principal just three miles down the way. He collaborates with a lot of community partners, such as Community and Schools, Boys Town, part of our pathway from poverty to provide resources and opportunities to so many kids. Started an after-school program at MLK where students receive one hour of free tutoring and one hour of enrichment club. I can tell you we've been there and it's art club, it's sports, it's basketball, it's flag football, it's soccer, it's STEM, so many opportunities. And to show you how much all those clubs matter, Mr. Taylor has reduced chronic absenteeism by 15% in the last two years, providing those wraparound services at his school. This one is kind of near and dear to my heart. I went to an award ceremony and I got to see my friend Mohammed Gay. He is a great little kid and he's going places. He spoke and he gave such a great speech that it touched my heart that he's the kind of future that we want out there. Mohammed is the captain on the MLK's All-City Champion team. He's a straight-A student. He's enrolled in GIF, the Gifted and Talented. He's been involved in MLK's after-school program since it started. And he also participated in the MLK Junior Day Parade as part of the step-up team. Mohammed, I hope that you can give that same speech at some other time that you gave about putting in a little bit of extra work to help others achieve their goals too really stuck with me and I hope that you continue on with that. I hope you enjoy this day and thank you for inspiring, educating, and elevating those around you. For this year's Black History Month, I'm happy to recognize Dean Ishman. Dean grew up in Queens, New York spent his career as a police officer for the New York City Transit Police Department before relocating to Las Vegas in May of 1995. Once settled, Dean felt directed by God to get involved as an activist with the Interfaith Council for Workers' Justice. That commitment led him to get involved with the local NAACP branch, and Dean became NAACP branch president in December 2003. He served as president until December 2007. During his service as president, he helped launch a new prison branch at Southern Desert Correctional Center. Today, Dean still has many roles in our community. He's been a member of the Fountain of Hope African Methodist Episcopal Church since 2002, a Silver Life member of the NAACP, been on the Sheriff's Multicultural Advisory Committee since 2005 and is a life member of the National Association of Blacks in Criminal Justice. He's been their president since 2011, and he's been a Shield of Hope Police Community Resource Group member since 2014. 
He's been a Big Brothers, Big Sisters of Southern Nevada member since 2012 and a Clark County School District Community Volunteer Partnership Program member since 2015. He was a part of the City of Henderson Comprehensive Plan Implementation Advisory Committee between 2009 and 2018. Along with his numerous achievements, Dean is a proud husband of 49 years to wife Diane, and he's father to two children, Deanne and William, grandfather of six, and a great-grandfather of three, all residents of Henderson and Las Vegas. Also, his hobby and passion, as if he had time, is fishing and the Las Vegas Aces. Dean, thank you for your immeasurable contributions to the black community and to the Las Vegas Valley community at large. We're so fortunate to have you as a part of both. Today we're celebrating Black History Month. So my honorees this month are Tina Frias from the airport. She's the first black senior director at the Department of Aviation. Dr. Tiffany Howard, UNLV political science professor. And then Crystal Cummings, who's the principal at Chaparral High School. Black History Month is a time to where we celebrate the contributions of African Americans throughout the diaspora here in the United States. From February 1st to March 1st, we'll be talking about all of the historical figures from the black community and the black culture uh, that has contributed so much to this country. You can't talk about American history without discussing the contribution of African Americans right here within these borders. For me, I am inspired by some of the past leaders like Shirley Chisholm, who became the first African-American woman to serve in the United States Senate. And you have individuals like the late, great Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King. And as for Clark County, it is my honor and my privilege to recognize two incredible individuals serving right here in the Southern Nevada community. First up is Barbara Nickerson. Ms. Barbara Nickerson, who's 80 years old, owned and operated Studio 702 and Nail Gallery for over 30 years, located at 1000 North Martha King Boulevard. She's also a licensed evangelist by the Church of God in Christ, serving as a district missionary to the Center of Hope Mission. She's received the Faithful Service Award from Nevada Church of God in Christ. She's a grandmother, mother, and mentor to so many young women in our community. I am honored to recognize this Black History Month, Miss Barbara Nicholson. Now we'll also introduce someone who really needs no introduction, but he is someone who's also broken barriers right here in our community, President Keith Whitfield. President Whitfield is an experienced university administrator and prolific scholar in the fields of psychology, health, and aging. President Whitfield joined UNLV in August of 2020 after serving as provost, senior vice president of academic affairs and professor of psychology at Wayne State University in Michigan, he also previously served as Vice Provost for Academic Affairs at Duke University, where he was also a professor in the Department of Psychology and Neuroscience and co-director of the University Center on Biobehavioral Health and Disparities Research. President Whitfield is also the first African-American to serve in the role of the President of the University of Nevada, Las Vegas. Congratulations to President Whitfield, and it is our honor to recognize you today. But let us remember, while we're celebrating the contributions of African-Americans uh, in the United States of America, let us also think through what we can do to continue to come together as one community, one Clark County, one state of Nevada, and one nation, to lift one another up, to be there for each other when we're in a time of need, and make sure that we do everything that we can to inspire those who are coming after us. Let's put our best foot first, and let's make sure that we live out the dream that so many of us who came before us had, and that's to lift up 
the quality of life for all of us right here within this nation, within this state, and right here in Clark County. Happy Black History Month. This Black History Month, we're recognizing from District A, Gurma Zaid, someone we are so proud to call a friend and a leader in Clark County. Girma has dedicated his life to improving the plight of immigrants living in the United States. He earned his master's degree in social work from UCLA in 1984 and has been working with children and families at the local government level ever since. He has held high-level positions in both LA and San Francisco's Child Services Department, and he served as the executive director of a foster family agency for six years. During this period of work, he was responsible for the care and thousands of at-risk, abused, and neglected children. After retiring, Gurma moved to Las Vegas and opened Diaspora International Consulting, where he serves the Ethiopian and Eritrean community with social and economic concerns. Gurma was elected as the Little Ethiopian Cultural District Subcommittee Chair, and after two years of hard work and dedication in this position, he and his team had the Clark County Cultural District of Little Ethiopia designated by the Board of County Commissioners. Gurma is a shining star in our community. He provides an incredible service to children, families, and others in need, and I am so proud not just to call him a friend, but to recognize him during Black History Month. Thank you, Gurma, for your service to Clark County. Anna Bailey was born in Brooklyn, but came to Vegas as a trailblazer for black women in the entertainment industry. In 1955, Anna was hired as a dancer at the Moulin Rouge on Bonanza Road, which at the time was the only integrated casino in Las Vegas. She was also the first black dancer to work at a casino on the Strip, having danced at the Flamingo Hotel and Casino. After her days dancing were over, she ventured into being an entrepreneur. At 97 years old, she still excels with the same grace as she did while showing off her dance moves on the stage. Bubba Knight is truly a living legend. He was an original founding member of the Pips, later known as Gladys Knight and the Pips. Bubba's an amazing recording artist with four Grammy Awards, one platinum album, seven gold albums, and 12 gold singles. He has performed around the world as a Pip in over 100 television shows spanning over 70 years. His most recent performance was today, singing the Black National Anthem at our Board of County Commissioners meeting, where he, Anna Bailey, and so many other African Americans were recognized by the board for their remarkable talents, contributions, and dedication to the African American community in the U.S. and around the world. All right, it wouldn't be complete if we didn't invite Mr. Summers up and Mr. Wilmore uh, so we can give them a proclamation as well. Are they still here? Oh, Brandon, okay, so we'll make sure we get Brandon's. Uh, Dre, did you wanna come on up? Uh, it'll just take a second. We'll get you back to your work that we know you love to do. <laughs> And then I have asked Muhammad to give us some aspiring words on our way out. So unless any of you, um, he's really a great speaker. I'm super excited where he's going to go someday. But unless anyone else wants to speak first, I'm going to let Muhammad close us out. And you, we got it. 
like to thank the commissioners for the award. Um, Oh, yeah. Of inspire, educate, and elevate. And I'd like to thank my principal for telling them about me. <laughs> and I'd like to thank my mom that stands in both of Bye. All right, well, thank you. He's not usually that shy whenever I've seen him, but uh, I'll get it recorded the next time he speaks and share with everybody. So on behalf of Clark County, um, we thank all of you for your contributions to our community, and we look forward to where we go from here. And again, uh, thank you for all that you do. Commissioners. <laughs> um, item two is to present a proclamation to Deltas in honor of the organization Delta Days. Commissioner McCurdy. Okay, call back to order. Back to order, please. All right, we're going to come back to uh, order. We're going to ask that if you received an award, uh, we thank you again for joining, but we just ask that you take the family photos right out front there. And again, thank you for joining us. But next up, we're going to... Let me reread it. Read it. Commissioners, I'll reread the item in. Boom it out. Boom it out. Yep. Yeah, I'll reread it. If I could I ask everybody to take just a moment, and uh, we have other folks that are getting awards today, so you can stay and support them. Uh, but uh, we want to be able to go to the next item, please. The commissioners, item two is to present a proclamation to Deltas in honor of the organization Delta Days. Commissioner McCurdy. Uh, thank you, Mr. Manager. Uh, Delta Sigma Theta Sorority Incorporated was founded on January 13, 1913 by 22 undergraduate African-American women at Howard University who wanted to use their collective strength to promote academic excellence 
and aid persons in need. Delta Sigma Theta Sorority Incorporated is a sisterhood of predominantly black college-educated women committed to public service with a focus on the black community that continues to make significant efforts to confront the challenges of the African-Americans within our community. The Las Vegas Alumni Chapter was chartered on June 3, 1966 by 11 extraordinary women. LVAC continues to make a mark in the Las Vegas community and abroad. With more than 250 members, the Las Vegas Chapter serves the community by providing countless hours of service, compelling programming, and effective collaborations with local organizations to offer thousands of dollars in scholarships each year. It is our honor and our privilege to recognize the women of Delta Sigma Theta Sorority Incorporated and join me in giving them a round of applause for all their contributions to Clark County and abroad. You want to speak that one back real? We're going to ask Dr. Rogers to say a few words. Um, thank you so much um, for honoring us today. We are excited to be here. We're excited to continue the work that we're doing in the community. Um, it is a privilege and an honor to be able to serve the Las Vegas community and just continue to support us whenever you hear about us, continue to support us, and if you have opportunities for us to be able to collaborate, please reach out. My name is Rebecca Rogers and I am the president of the Las Vegas Alumni Chapter of Delta Sigma Theta. Thank you. And if we can give them one more round of applause for all that they do. Commissioners, item three is to recognize Jim Guerin, director of the Clark County Building Department, for being awarded the 2023 Developers Champion Inaugural Award. And I think we have some representatives from NAOP here and ask Jim to come down. I think this award's probably a little premature since the Super Bowl's not over yet, but hopefully you're gonna pull it down. Yes. Oh, okay. Yeah, come on up. Oh 
Is there a president of the association? Yes, yeah. yeah, sir. I'll, I'll okay. talk to the president. Yeah. Yeah. Do you mind? Do you mind? Good morning, everyone. Thank you very much. Uh, I'm Stephen Iger with CAST, also Government Affairs Chair and Board of Board of Member of NAAP Southern Nevada. I'm here along with several of our chapter leaders. Um, we are here for Mr. Guerin on behalf of NAAP, which is a commercial real estate development association and one of the largest trade organizations in the state of Nevada. Our industry, the commercial real estate industry, is the largest non-gaming related economic driver in the state. It was our pleasure to present the very first Developers Champion Award to Jim Guerin during our December holiday program. The Developers Champion Award is a new annual award intended to recognize a single person in the government, infrastructure, or economic development sectors who has had a tremendous impact on the commercial real estate development industry. It's no secret that Clark County, much like everyone else in Southern Nevada, has been overwhelmed with work. It has been a challenging few years for many of us, let alone a building official in the Clark County Building Department. For someone under the workload and the amount of stress that Jim's been under since taking his position, it might be reasonable for him to not return phone calls. The easiest thing he probably could have done was shut his door and put his head down on his desk. But instead, Jim returns calls quickly and keeps his door open to our industry. And it's that kind of effort and communication that helps us all work together and move our community forward. Jim's commitment and dedication to being an effective, solutions-oriented leader has saved our community and economy thousands of hours in time and productivity. His hard work has had a direct impact on our Valley's economic growth. And for that, we thank you very much, Jim. I just want to thank the board and NAOP members for showing up and supporting me uh, in this rec recognition. I uh, really appreciate it. I would like to highlight the support I get from the county management. Uh, Kevin's been great. Uh, Leslie was my boss for about six months after uh, my previous boss retired, and my new boss, uh, Lisa Kramer, has been very supportive in all of our uh, efforts to support NAOP. Uh, the building department under my direction has always focused on customer service and public service. And I've always preached to the NAOP members that anytime you need help, call me. Uh, we'd like to treat this as a partnership, and uh, hopefully we can help you moving forward. We just got through the evaporative cooling uh, deadline, and uh, that went well, and I appreciate all the uh, help your members uh, gave us last week. Thank you very much. Thank you so much. And it goes without saying, uh, Marilyn's the other boss you have, so it looks like you have <laughs> three women bosses here, plus Kevin. Anyway, thank you so much, and I can honestly say uh, you've been a breath of fresh air over there, but get back to work until Sunday. <laughs> Commissioners, our next item is to recognize Clark County employees as recipients of the Patriot Award by ESGR, the employer support of the Garden Reserve. Recipients for, the 2020, for 2024 are DJJS Dr Deputy Director Ebony Washington and DJJS Assistant Manager Horacio Valdez for their support of Kishmir Cardoso, who actively serves in the National Guard. 
Recipient for 2023 is Captain Ryan Glassford for his support of Jeffrey Greer, who actively serves in the National Guard. In addition, the Clark County employees and service members who were previously awarded the 2023 Patriot Award by ESGR will be acknowledged. Abby. Um, and we'd like to show a quick video explaining the employer's support of the Guard and Reserve prior to the awards being given. Today, our nation's all-volunteer military is 2.1 million strong. These extraordinary men and women serve both overseas in the defense of our nation and in our local community when called upon. A critical part of today's military is the National Guard and the Reserve, which make up 40% of the joint force. Because members of the Guard and Reserve serve in both the military and civilian workforce, they need the support of their employers when they deploy for weeks or months at a time, often on short notice. At the same time, these patriotic employers face their own challenges as they support the needs of the nation. Enter ESGR, Employer Support of the Guard and Reserve. Established in 1972, the main role of ESGR is to help employers understand, value, and support their employees' military service. We work in every way we can creatively and proactively to reach out to our nation's employers. From seminars to educational experiences like boss lifts, ESGR consistently helps employers understand what it's like to serve in the military. So it's a learning opportunity for them, and that's what we hope to accomplish through all the things that we do. In this way, ESGR exposes employers to the unique experience and capabilities that Guard and Reserve members bring to the workplace. Hiring people who serve in the Guard and Reserve is not just the right thing to do, it is also the business smart thing to do. When you know that they are dependable, they are team leaders, they are mission focused, that's a good hire as far as I'm concerned, and I don't care what business you're in. Veterans have a proven track record of success. So whether you're talking about a military spouse or you're talking about someone in the Guard or Reserve, companies recognize that veterans are a great hire. While ESGR is a voice for the members of the Guard and Reserve, it also very much works for the nation's patriotic employers. And we're the voice for employers within the Department of Defense. So we advocate in both ways. We help to strike a healthy balance there where we're a benefit to both. A key benefit of ESGR is that it offers free services, helping employees and employers understand USERA, the Federal Employment Protection Law for service members, and mediating USERA cases are both very important parts of ESGR's mission. ESGR is important because they serve as that interface to help us to make sure that we're fulfilling our obligation. It's been a great partnership for us. ESGR also provides a suite of recognition opportunities, including the Patriot Award, the Seven Seals Award, and the prestigious Secretary of Defense Employer Support Freedom Award. We think it's important to tell the nation the great things that American employers are doing. We're really blessed in this country to have that kind of support coming from uh, the nation's great employers. This employer-employee relationship is so important that in celebration of ESGR Week, a presidential proclamation stated, because of the vital importance of our National Guard and Reserve forces to our national security, those who employ them are key partners in the defense of our nation. While ESGR provides education and mediation, what makes ESGR unique is that it is made up of over 3,000 unpaid volunteers. We're volunteers. We are not paid a single dime to go out and do what we do. And to my ESGR volunteers, it is an honor and a privilege for me to have the opportunity to serve with you. 
If you are a member of the Guard or Reserve, or if you are a company or organization of any size that has employees that are a member of the Guard or Reserve, ESGR is ready to serve you. And if you want to stand for those that stand for us, join our volunteers that make a real difference each day. Visit ESGR.mil to learn more, because we all serve. Thank you, thank you. Uh, my name is Rex Miller. I'm one of those volunteers. And uh, it is my distinct pleasure to serve as the state chair for ESGR in Nevada. And we have a couple of uh, great people here that are going to get a Patriot Award this morning. Uh, and it's, it's kind of a big deal for them. And it's a really big deal for uh, Nevada ESGR for, for our folks. And uh, so without further ado, I'm not going to uh, uh, go any further, but I just wanted to tell you that during the pandemic, we had 1,100 National Guard members here in Las Vegas serving the pandemic. Okay? And I'm still mad at that sergeant that stuck that thing up my nose. <laughs> but... <laughs> <laughs> she about, I thought she was going to poke my eye out, but they served, and, and uh, that's what you need to know. But they're serving all over the world, okay? There's 30,000 reservists and guard members serving overseas today, and it's going to continue. And the, the commitment, they have a real commitment to serve, not only serve their, and serve their employer. So the thought is, is if, Captain, where would you go? Oh, okay, Captain Cardozo uh, has to go off for two weeks or go off for a year or whatever it might be. Somebody has to step in to pick up the slack. So you're serving too as the employer or as the fellow employee. Okay, so that's what I have to say. So what, you want to start? Sure. Let's start with you. Captain, it's all yours. Um, good morning, everyone. I'm Captain Cardoso. Um, I serve with the Nevada National Guard 421st RTI as the commander of the M2TC company. And what my company basically does is uh, we train and prepare um, incoming soldiers to take their duties and follow through with information technology and also communication specialists. So um, we're a pretty big deal. Uh, if you guys ever hear about us or see us out in the community, um, please just say hi. Um, so I've been with the county for about eight years now. Um, of those eight years, I've also served with the Nevada National Guard. So as a service member and as a county employee, um, there's barriers and obstacles that I need to overcome because, yes, it's great that it sounds like we only do one week in a month and um, two weeks out of the year, but in reality, it's more than that. There's times that I leave my team, I leave my department, and go off either not just one week, two weeks, three weeks, a month, a quarter, uh, up to a year. And um, I gotta make sure everything's in place for my team to take over and, and follow through with what we need to do as far as our duties. So today I'm very honored and appreciative that I can recognize my team and show them that their support, they're willing to pick up my slack and pick up my duties is, is helping me succeed somewhere else as well. So I, all I can say is uh, thank you, team. Um, 
And uh, thank you to my leadership because uh, without them, I would not be the leader that I am today as well. And to my partner, Miss uh, Jennifer Leach, uh, thank you for just uh, coming through every single time and you know being there for me. So. Um, Okay, you ready? Yeah. I'll, I'll read the. I'll read it for you. You can stand and get your picture. No, thank you. Okay. So, uh, for Miss Ebony Washington, Department of Ju Juvenile Justice Services, Clark County, Nevada, recognized as a patriotic employer for contributing to the national security and protecting liberty and freedom by supporting employee participation in America's National Guard and Reserve Force, and. Well, we, we got somebody trained for state over here. <laughs> and let's do another one. Okay. From the Office of the Secretary of Defense, Employer Support and Guard and Reserve, recognizes Horacio Valdez, Department of Juvenile Justice Services, Clark County, Nevada, as a patriotic employer for contributing to the national security and protecting liberty and freedom by supporting employee participation in America's National Guard and Reserve Force. Um, so in the military, we do have a tradition where we coin uh, people for accomplishments. Um, so today I'm going to be coining uh, Ms. Jennifer Leach. Um, my regimental commander sent over a regimental coin to you uh, for your commitment and support to me. So. Okay, this one's special to me because I've known him for a while. And uh, uh, a little tidbit, morning he told, oh, sorry, I'm, I get out of control. Uh, this morning he told me about talking to an army major uh, named Jeff Greer that I've known for a long time. And Jeff was deployed and is deployed overseas in the Middle East. And uh, so he is part of the Clark County Fire Department, and he nominated uh, Chief Glassford for an award, and I have it here. And uh, I think this is not your first one, is it? I don't know. I've maybe one or two. Maybe <laughs> one or two? <laughs> yeah. Because those, those firefighters like you for some reason. So uh, without further ado, the Office of Secretary of Defense, Employer Support of the Guard and Reserve, recognizes Ryan Glassford. Clark County Fire Department as a patriotic employer for contributing to national security and protecting liberty and freedom by supporting employee by supporting employee participation in America's National Guard and Reserve Force. Uh, and uh, this is yet another for the fire department. Thank you very much. And I don't have any more pins. I ran out. You guys ran me out.
Oh, I got one. No, I don't. Okay. So do you got one? Okay, I, I kind of figured you did. Okay, so this this is a, a really big yeah. This is a really big deal for me because uh, we have selected ESGR has selected the Clark County Fire Department to go forward as our nomination for the Freedom Award. Doesn't mean we've won it, but we're sure as hell gonna try. So uh, I, in fact, I signed it yesterday so, so that we can move forward with the Clark County Fire Department as one of our nominees uh, to the National Freedom Award. So this is third try, so maybe we'll win. Thank you so much. Um, we're so proud of uh, Captain Cardozo. I'm so happy that he is being supported on the team. And thank you for your support. Thank you all so much. So, not the first time. It won't be the last. Good. And I know it's the law that we have to make sure that when they come home, they go back to the same job and the same whatever. But the truth is, we can go above that. So thank you, Clark County. Commissioners, item five is to present a proclamation to Progressive Leadership Alliance of Nevada and the Regional Transportation Commission of Southern Nevada in recognition of Transit Equity Day and recognizing the importance of the work towards providing access to healthcare, education, work, and self-care. Commissioner Jones. Thank you, Manager Schiller. Uh, I'd like to call up Laura Martin from uh, Progressive Leadership Alliance of Nevada. Uh, as well as our snap snaps, um, as well as our CEO of the uh, Regional Transportation Commission, MJ Maynard. Rosa Parks celebrated, would have celebrated her 111th birthday on February 4th, and as a result of that, this date has become known as Transit Equity Day in honor of her historic protests on the Montgomery, Alabama bus. This defiant act of choosing to stay in place on her seat in the front of the bus and disobeying orders to move became one of the most important events during the Civil Rights Movement. Today I'm joined by Progressive Leadership Alliance of Nevada and our amazing team at the RTC who continue to strive to ensure that Rosa Parks' legacy lives on every day. As we celebrate Transit Equity Day and her legacy, I'm grateful for your hard work, commitment, and advocacy in promoting equality, inclusivity, and accessibility throughout our community. Thank you both for all of your efforts in our community here. Uh, our uh, transit system serves more than 150,000 daily rides uh, to make sure that people can get to and from work and to and from uh, other important uh, uh, areas in their community. We're committed to continue having our fares be affordable. Our priority is to keep the system equitable and accessible for all riders. Um, and as our valley continues to grow, we, we are going to expand our reach to ensure everyone has a seat and not to be told otherwise. And I'll pass the microphone to, to Laura. We had a really exciting unveiling uh, yesterday, and so uh, I'll pass it over to Laura. Thank you, and thank you to the commission and RTC. I think some of you may be surprised my work with the RTC started with a tweet. Um, but that just goes to show how open our government is to working with community partners, especially partners like PLAN who have leaders and staff who use transportation, um, as we are public transportation, as we see, you know, F1, the Super Bowl, and all this excitement. Mariah Carey just announced a new residency at Park MGM. Um, we also want to make sure that the outlying neighborhoods are also connected to all of that action for entertainment and also for jobs. So transit equity is really important, really appreciative of all the collaboration. 
Yeah, I, I talked about the bus, that's right. Well, I, first of all, I want to thank the commissioners, thank certainly our chairman of the RT, RTC, and that's uh, Commissioner Jones and uh, Commissioner Segerbloom. You know, without access, there can be no equity. And every member of this community deserves the same right to get to a job, to get to education, to get to healthcare, regardless of what mode they can afford or they have. And that's really the, the sign of a great community is one that will invest in equal opportunity for all. So I'm very proud that the RTC, in, in conjunction with PLAN, that our, we remain committed to serving our community um, and that everybody, again, has equal access. Let's give them both a round of applause. Chairman and Commissioners, um, before we move on, um, we did miss a few people on the ESGR awards on the previous item, so I'm going to have Abby briefly just introduce them. Um, I apologize. We'd also like to recognize Sergeant D. Aspiazu from Las Vegas Metro, and he was nominated by Alan Jimenez. And I believe we have someone from fire as well, a fire captain. I'm just, I'm sorry, I don't, I don't have the name. Come down. We'd also like to recognize Captain Thomas Touchstone from the fire department. Uh, we've actually, Clark County has gotten a lot of these awards um, over the years for their support for guardsmen. And I apologize for the oversight. Thank you so much. Appreciate the support to the Las Vegas Metropolitan Police Department and go Niners. <laughs> that was two things. Uh, Commissioners, item six um, is going to be held and deleted to another meeting, so we can now move to the first section of public comment. All right, this is the time for public comment. If anyone wishes to speak on an item that's on the agenda, feel free to come for, for now and, and speak. Or if you want to speak on the item at the time, it, that's also possible. Hello, Dave Johnson, 220 Whitney Breeze, North Las Vegas, 89031, uh, 4D. Um, I'm talking about item number 69, uh, Deputy Director Patrick Barkley. Um, there's lots of, I, I have a lot of good things to say about that guy. Um, I spoke last time about some uh, of my personal experience, my own experience in the foster care system as a parent, uh, micromanaging parenting, some discrimination and child sex trafficking. But later, 
when six layers of management below Mr. Barkley were unavailable to help with that last issue, the child sex trafficking, Patrick Barkley was. He was up late at night helping me find resources for this child to help get them in a stable situation that was best. He's an amazing man. Um, I, I want to talk about, um, I read his uh, presentation and he's going to be talking about their efforts in recruitment and they are making an amazing job and I am seeing a lot of progress in the department from my end as a foster parent. But I don't see a lot of uh, being done on um, retention and the concerns that we as foster parents are having. Um, I just want to point out a couple of things. Can you hold the microphone up if you're speaking? This is the Clark County right. website for reporting. No 2024. We have no information from 2024. There's, there's a handheld mic there, too. This is from the Clark County uh, Citizens Advisory Committee. Um, they haven't had meetings in three, three meetings missed because of quorum issues. You guys need to seriously appoint some people there. I've applied for it. I don't know where that's gone. There's no foster parents on it uh, as part of DFS licensing, so our issues are not being heard by that committee. There's also supposed to be children in it. I, after I spoke at this meeting last time, my issues with discrimination were cleared up, and I got a placement eight hours after this meeting. Eight hours later, I was in court being threatened by an officer for crimes committed at Child Haven by this child because of lack of supervision. I, for a child I met eight hours earlier. This is the kind of hell that we as foster parents are going through. We need our voices heard and we need to know. Another uh, last website. This is on the current status of DFS, statistical overview. Nothing since September 2023. Guys, please pay attention. Thank you. Thank you. Anyone else, anyone else wish to speak? Good morning, Mr. Chairman. Daniel Braisted, B-R-A-I-S-T-E-D. This item is not on the agenda, yet it should be. I paid $125 to go listen to the preview to hear the results of Formula One. Why aren't we, why I don't think, it because it's not on the agenda, Mr. Braceford, I don't think you, you can't speak now, we have to speak afterwards. The opening, re, opening comments are just on think matters on the agenda. Thank you. This for public comment, uh, the, the, the system out here is not very good. Is uh, this for public comment right now? Uh, public comment on an item on the agenda. Okay, thank you. Hello. My name is Matthew Fof, uh, 1922 Stewart Avenue, Las Vegas, Nevada, 89101. Uh, I'm going to talk about agenda item number eight, actually. Regarding this meeting on January 2nd, uh, passing of pedestrian flow zones, 16-30, uh, where it's illegal to stop on the strip. Um, 
I've also been trying to communicate uh, four times with the, the board I on emails. I think this isn't an item on this agenda. I, I apologize. Again. This is just, you're talking about the, the minutes, which is not an item on the agenda. It has I to be think it's an item on the agenda of the minute of that meeting. It, it, it's not, we're talking about items that are on this agenda, not, okay. not the minutes of the agenda. If you I'll want to come I'll back wait till the public commentary then. Thank you so much. All right. Oh, whoops. Uh, Lawrence Rupp, uh, about the Water Authority. I don't know the man. I don't really know. I'm, I'm sorry. Is there an item on the agenda you want to speak about? Something about the uh, general manager being, his contract being signed or something? Um, item 33. Item 33, yes. Sorry, item yeah? 40. Yes. Okay, just quick. Uh, just what the internet says and what I and the studies I've done, uh, $9,000 a week for pay sounds like it's a lot. Sounds like it's way too much to me. The President of the United States makes 8000 a week. He takes care of 320 million people. This guy takes care of 600,000 Las Vegas citizens. 9000 a week, just too much. It's a uh, not-for-profit. They can vote each other, and there's going to be a nice bonus on top of that. I just don't think it's justified. All right, thank you. Anyone else? See anyone else? We'll we'll move forward. Um, Mr. Schiller, is there? Commissioners, we can now move to your agenda. Item eight is approval of the minutes of the regular meeting on January second, two thousand twenty-four. Move approval. Cast your votes. And that motion passes. Commissioners, we can now move to the approval of the agenda with the inclusion of any emergency items and deletion of any items. For the record, I would like to read a correction item number 67 under your business agenda. Under the item recommendation, reappoint Joseph Davis and appoint Christabel Stallworthy to the Moapa Valley Fire Protection District Advisory Board for a two-year term ending February, 20, February 6, 2026 also sitting as Moapa Valley File District. Staff is also requesting that item six and ID, item 46 be deleted from your agenda. I move approval with the corrections and the deletion. There's a motion uh, for approval. Mr. Chairman, may I ask for clarification? You're pulling my item? Is that what you said? Oh, you just re you reread re it. We, the I microphones are it. not working that well, no, so. That's what, I'll speak louder. Okay. Yeah, it wasn't your item. All right, there's a motion on the floor. Cast your vote. And that motion passes. Commissioners, we can now move to your consent agenda, consisting of items number 10 through 56. As previously mentioned, item number 6 and 46 have been deleted. Move approval. Mr. Chair, I have a disclosure yes. to make. On agenda item number 33, I'm the county's designee to the board of Impact NV. Um, being on this board will not affect my ability to uh, to consider it. Um, I don't know, Lisa, whatever my whatever the language is supposed to say. Yeah. <laughs> um, you don't have a pecuniary interest or business in interest in there that entity, so he is uh, permitted to vote with that disclosure. Thank you. All right, there's a motion by Commissioner McCurdy. All in favor, cast your vote.
That motion passes. Commissioners, we can now, it's 10 a.m., so we can now move to the public hearing section of your agenda. Item 57 is to conduct a public hearing and approve, adopt, and authorize the chair to sign an ordinance to amend Clark County Code Title 19, Chapter 19.07, Section 19.07.010 to update the federal regulatory authority to establish, use, and operate a mitigation bank or in lieu fee program to mitigate for certain projects affecting aquatic resources in Clark County delete unneeded definitions and providing for other matters properly related thereto. Good morning, Commissioners. Marcy Henson, I'm the Director of the Department of Environment and Sustainability. The item in front of you is to update um, our code with regard to um, establishing an in-lieu fee mitigation bank program. And the language changes have to do with um, making our code language uh, compliant with federal regulations that were adopted since the original adoption of the county code. Um, we were um, asked to partner with Regional Flood Control District on establishing an additional mitigation bank for mitigation for Section 404 Clean Water Act permits. Uh, we're happy to do that. We have some property along the Muddy and Virgin River uh, rivers that will allow us to um, implement mitigation actions um, that are also helpful with our endangered species permit uh, mitigation as well. I'll take any questions. This is a public hearing. Anyone wishing to comment can come forward. Seeing no one, uh, we'll close the public hearing. Anyone on the board want to make a comment or question? If there are no other comments or questions, I move approval. There's a motion for approval. Cast your vote. Thank you. And that's unanimous, congratulations. <laughs> Commissioners, item 58 is to conduct a public hearing to receive comments or objections from the public concerning the granting of a telecommunications franchise to Google Fiber Nevada LLC to provide telecommunications services in certain unincorporated areas of Clark County and to approve and authorize the chair to sign a telecommunications utility system franchise agreement between Clark County and Google Fiber Nevada LLC to construct, operate, and maintain a telecommunications utility system to provide subscription service in certain unincorporated areas of Clark County, Nevada for a term of 10 years with one five-year renewal option and providing for other matters properly related thereto. Uh, good morning. Good morning, Chair, Commissioners. Uh, Mike Harwell for Business License. Uh, Google Fiber Nevada has uh, applied for a telecommunication franchise. They've received a certificate of public convenience from the PUC, and the board accepted the application on January 2nd and set a public hearing for today to receive any comments or objections from the public. Uh, pursuant to state law, we have posted the notice of this meeting uh, in the uh, review journal once a week for four weeks, and also in three locations in each of the towns they plan on operating in. As of today, the clerk's office nor um, business license have received any comments from the public. Um, and the, uh, you're asked to open a public hearing for this, receive any comments from today, and uh, following that, uh, to consider awarding the franchise agreement to uh, Google Fiber. This is a public hearing. Uh, anyone wishing to comment, please come forward. Good morning, Mr. Chair, members of the commission. My name is Craig Stevens. I'm here representing uh, Cox Cable. Um, if you read the, uh, the agenda item, it specifically states that 
This is to be awarding a telecommunications franchise to Google Fiber to provide telecommunications services in certain areas of Clark County. This company doesn't actually provide telecommunications services, so we're not quite sure how you can offer a franchise for services that aren't being offered. And this was pointed out, Mr. Chairman, by you at the last hearing for um, another broadband-only provider um, asking what they're going to be paying to be in the right-of-way. And because they're under a telecommunications uh, franchise and they don't offer those services, they're not going to be paying anything to be in the right-of-way, just as everyone else does who has the privilege of being in the right-of-way. Um, there is a way, however, that um, Google Fiber and we believe Gigapower can be in the right-of-way. You have a system already in place. Switch uses it. L3 Communications, they already use it. And it's called a right-of-way right license. And it's for fiber providers in order to be in the right-of-way so that they are allowed to be in there. But they also, it's equitable to everyone else who lays fiber within the ground. Yes, we are uh, a cable internet provider and we go under a cable license, which then requires us to pay 5% on our video and telecommunications offerings. Um, where this right-of-way license would require them to pay on the fiber that they're putting in the ground, which is much more equitable to, again, companies such as Switch to L3 Communications who currently do this. Giving them a telecommunications license for services that they don't actually offer, it just, it just doesn't really make sense to us. And so I would submit to you to either amend this to put them under a right-of-way license or to put it on hold and let's have that discussion about what is the truly equitable way in order to do this so that everyone is treated fairly and then we can get Google, we can get Gigapower um, into here to, to compete because I know I hear you loud and clear. Um, Commissioners, that you want more competition in the market, but it has to be done fairly and equitably. And you already have the systems in place to do that. We just don't think that a telecommunications franchise is the right way to do it. Because, again, if they're going to be cutting up the streets, doing micro-trenching, you have no way, you, the county is going to be held responsible for any of that maintenance because they're not going to have to pay for it because they're not paying anything to actually be in the right-of-way. So let's find a way to get it equitable, to get them here, Again, I am not here to say, let's kill this thing, let's not allow them here, we don't want competition. It just has to be fair and a way that already exists in order to get them here. Um, so that you're compensated appropriately to be in the right of way, it's yours. And those of us who are gonna compete against them aren't put at a competitive disadvantage. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Stevens. Um, Lisa, could you weigh in on that, I'm not sure, finish your public hearing. Oh, I'm sorry. Any more public comments? All right. We'll close the public hearing and open up for discussion. So back to my question. Lisa, can you comment on the switch versus um, sure. so telecommunications? So uh, in this situation, Google Fiber, as along with, you've had two others come before you as well too, they went to the PUC and got a telecommunication license. So they are um, a telecommunication service as licensed by the PUC in Nevada. So they are eligible for a franchise, and so to treat them consistently with how we've treated the other telecommunication companies, they've come before you and followed that same process. Mr. Chairman, may I ask a question? Please. So I, I know yesterday in my briefings, right, I'm, I'm the, I get, I don't like to share a right-of-way period, but, um, so I'm consistent. But um, is we, 
I asked if there's ways that in the future we can come back with a business license that is more in line with the service that all of these folks actually do and the reporting mechanism because we kind of need to know where all these places are going to go and at some point there needs to be um, we we need it to match what we're doing right the middle mile only works if we know what everybody else is doing and our staff just does not have the time to hunt and peck and I think that these companies should do that but I think that um, we need to go back and look at uh, where they fit in the business license and I mean if they're really a telecommunications um, we want to make sure that it aligns with the state tax and all those other things um, because this is the first of many that are going to come here so if we approve this today that doesn't mean that we can't come back in a short term and put something else uh, in place with going through business impact statements and all that other good stuff correct we you guys could give direction for business license to relook at what that category of a business license looks like and we can um, bring something back to you mr. chair yes we can't be the first state that has had uh, this challenge I'm wondering if it wouldn't be well for our staff to take a look at what others have done in an effort to see if there isn't something that makes sense I mean, one of the difficulties is that um, the micro trenching and the laying of fiber um, is one piece of a business plan um, you don't do that unless you intend to monetize that investment well we don't know what that means they know what that means and it must have been done in other places so I, I would think that one of the things we'd want to do is take a hard look at what other jurisdictions who have had this kind of a challenge have done Mr. Neff. Thank you, Chairman. I agree with Commissioners Kirkpatrick and Gibson entirely, but uh, just a point of clarification. We're, our, the interpretation is based on the fact that they've received a telecom license from the PUC. We're not exploring whether or not they're actually doing telecom work. It's, it's one of the things they can do, but they can also um, provide this other service just as Cox provides this other service in, in the right-of-way as well, too, under their telecommunication license. So it's one of the things they can do under their telecommunication license. Thank you. Mr. Chair, see, so what's interesting is that when we started to have these conversations during the course of our meetings, uh, it was not communicated that they would be doing any type of communication services. Uh, it was made clear that, you know, they would be providing internet services. So my question is, is it, is it prudent for us to move forward, uh, being that, you know, it seems to be that there needs to be a little bit of more work done and more research done as it relates to the type of licenses that we're going to grant uh, when it seems like there are some questions? Well, I'm just going to follow up on that, but we probably need to talk about the real discussion is state, the state passed this and the state allowed the PUC to set that in place, right? Because this is not what we wanted, quite frankly, right? I, so I will just, Leslie and I started on this in 2000 and I don't know, 16 maybe. And we went to federal court, Ninth Circuit Court, all these other things with National NACO. So this is, was not our wish. This was the state legislature that allowed it to be codified with the PUC, correct? Is someone going to say yes? 
That's correct. Um, this, when we started these discussions, obviously this wasn't the path that we hoped to end up on, but because the PUC has licensed them this way, this is where we've ended up with the franchise agreement. So we're, Mr. Chair, we're, we're limited in what we can do. At the end of the day, they're licensed as they have presented themselves. And if they come that way, then they have to be treated like the others who've been in line in front of them. That is correct. The, the thing that I think makes sense, though, is to explore the ultimate activities to see what might be there. And I think we can learn that in discussions with Google. I think we can also learn that from the experience in other jurisdictions. And that gives us an opportunity to ensure that the right-of-way isn't, we're not just giving it away, and we're not just opening ourselves to incredible expense because of the potential for maintenance and all the rest of it. So I, I, I hope that we will take a look at that. Yeah, my concern is that um, I, I gather that they're saying they're only gonna use the internet, but um, what happens if they change their mind down the road and they start adding features Will they know to come to us and then we're gonna start taxing them on that portion of it? Uh, how, how would that all work? So if they would add a telecommunication service such as phone or cable TV, the, this franchise agreement would already tax them for those services. That's what's built into the franchise agreement for those services. Uh, so it sounds like we, uh, we have some work to do, but uh, I guess I'm prepared to make a motion to approve this and have staff take a look at uh, the type of license that we're going to be granting and come back to us with uh, what you learn and through your exploration. Uh, so that's my motion. And before we go, vote on, I do want to comment that I gather there are franchise, I mean, um, business licensing fees that we, the city is looking at also, and we're going to look actively at those um, as a source of revenue. That is correct. All right, the motion on the floor, cast your vote. And that motion passes. Thank you. Commissioners, we can now move to introduction of ordinances. Item 59 is an ordinance to amend Clark County Air Quality Regulations Section 0 definitions to remove, revise, and add definitions, and then Section 12.0 applicability and general requirements for permitting stationary sources to add clarifying language and include new requirements for certain st stationary sources and ozone non-attainment areas subject to the state implementation plan and stationary source permitting and provide for other matters properly related thereto and set a public hearing. All right, I'll introduce the ordinance and set the public hearing for February 20th, 2024. At 10 a.m. Oh. At 10 a.m. Oh. <laughs> I'm sorry. Uh, Mr. Chairman, the artist was finished, so oh, we wanted I to. Yes, I got, jumped ahead of myself. So yes, could, uh, could you please bring your art back and, and uh, let's take a brief moment to recognize what he's done and, and, and again, thank him so much. Can, can you come on up here? No, we want you to be behind us so that we can see what you got. They've been watching you. We haven't seen it yet.
Well, the thought process was um, just me uh, being a creative artist. And, uh, I did all this uh, right here on the spot. I didn't know what I was going to actually paint. Uh, I was just inspired by um, being here and being part of uh, Black History Month, and this was the result of it. Thank you so much. Um, Chairman, on item 59, I probably need you to restate uh, what you're standing the hearing for and the time. Okay, I'm setting the hearing for February 20th, 2024 at 10 a.m. Thank you. Uh, item 60 is an ordinance to amend Clark County Air Quality Regulation 12.1 to update, clarify, and provide and new requirements for certain sources and non-attainment areas, define clean air solvent, provide criteria for insignificant units and activities, and delete discretionary language regarding required permit conditions in portable source permits, and then section 12.11 to require minor sources to obtain an authority to operate under an applicable general permit and add a federal reference for applying screening models to source emissions, clarify and correct a regulatory cross-reference, provide for other matters properly rated thereto, and set a public hearing. All right, so I would introduce the ordinance and schedule the public hearing for February 20th, 2024 at 10 a.m. Can I move to the business section of your agenda? Item 61 is to identify emerging issues to be addressed by staff or by the board at future meetings, receive updates on the activities of the various regional boards and commissions and direct staff accordingly. Anyone have any emerging issues? I Go ahead. I'm Christopher Patrick. Uh, I wanted to, uh, Commissioner Jones and I met with some of the judges and we asked if we could talk about this spring doing a, um, doing something about all these traffic tickets. And not a lot of people realize that traffic tickets, uh, there's a bifurcated system now, so people may think that they've cleaned up their speeding ticket but not cleaned up their <laughs> no insurance ticket, so they're stuck in between the civil court and traffic court. So. If you could uh, ask them if we could come back with something to kind of at least give people some guidance on which direction to go and how we could uh, somewhat streamline that. Is that good? And then my second thing is I just wanted to give a real hats off to all of the Clark County employees and the agencies that we work with, including the Health District, Water District, because we've been super busy for a while and all the agencies pulling together um, nothing but compliments from outside of our community about how uh, great it's been to work with Clark County and um, that's a testament to the employees that we employ here and I just think that it's important. We got, after this week, we got Rock and Roll Marathon, we've got NASCAR, then we've got EDC and then we started all over. So I just wanted to say thank you to all of the employees across Clark County and our agencies that we partner with on making sure, uh, Commissioner Sager-Bloom will tell you that uh, the Southern Nevada Health District has issued over 10,000 health cards this last year. So that's a 
tells you how many things that we're doing. So thank you. Anyone else? Just to follow up on that, I think uh, we should really look at some type of a recognition day. Either give them a bonus or give them a cake or, or a proclamation, but our employees have really gone overboard this past year, especially when you consider Formula One and the Super Bowl back-to-back. -back. It's just really pushed everyone to the limit, and we've just done such a fantastic job. And I wanted to make a comment about um, asking staff to look at creating some type of task force dealing with undergrounding of utilities, not undergrounding utilities, but the wires that are being taken out of streetlights. Um, you know, I'm sure all of you have felt the same pain, but there's lots of dead areas in our streets where there's no lights, um, lots of crime going on. I know that when you talk to public works, the people are pulling the, the copper wire out and selling it. So I think we need to look at trying to create a task force of Metro, hopefully the city, um, public works and, and maybe private industry, see if we can come up with some type of penalties for uh, junkyards that buy this stuff, uh, maybe some type of reward system, $1,000 if you turn somebody in and they, they end up doing something, but just putting some teeth to it. I saw City of Los Angeles did the same thing, and so I'd like to use that as a model, but if everyone agrees, we'll ask staff to look at that idea. Mr. Naft. Um, I guess avoiding discussion just for information for the board. <coughs> Um, LVMPD through Sheriff McMahon has recently reinstituted the construction uh, division, um, which will allow us, rather than uh, every time a copper theft happens in Clark County, currently our staff would have to theoretically report that information to the area command in which the crime occurs, which is virtually impossible for public works to be running around to every area command doing that. Um, this centralizes that process. Um, so maybe it's a good opportunity for um, Public Works and Metro to report back to the board um, what they've done on that subject because Chairman's right, we're, we are millions of dollars deep into this problem. Not only is it a financial burden on the county taxpayers, but this is a life and safety issue. Um, we all have we all have areas in our districts that are without power, and it's not like a days-long problem. It's a weeks and weeks-long problem impacting safety on roadways and impacting uh, the potential for increased crime, pedestrian safety. Um, so I agree. Anything I could do to support that effort moving forward and then also just an update for the board on what is being done. Thank you. So that would be part of my request is that you reach out to the sheriff and, and uh, verify what he's doing. I know they did have a task force within the Metro previously, so hopefully they can work together. Thank you. All right, next item. Commissioners, item 62 is to appoint five qualified individuals to serve as members of the Department of Family Services Citizens Advisory Committee for three-year terms ending on January 1st, 2027 from the list of the following applicants, Donna Smith and Deshaun Jackson, and new applicants Brandon Ford, Kimberly Abbott, and Tracy Nellis. Move for approval of the five individuals. There's a motion. There's a motion. Cast your vote. And that motion passes. Commissioners, item 63 is to approve and authorize the chair to reappoint five qualified individuals to serve on the Ryan White Part A Planning Council for a two-year term commencing on March 1st, 2024 through February 28, 2026 from the list of interested individuals, Crystal Griffin, Lorenzo Stanley, Lourdes Yavjoko, 
Mark Gilbert and Robert Wilson and appoint 12 new qualified individuals to serve on the Ryan White Part A County Council for a two-year term commencing on March 1st, 2024 through February 28th, 2026 from the list of the interested individuals. Anthony Castro, Brent Morris, Kathleen Dan Danheiser, Gina Candelario, Jenny Martin, Lavada Palm, Lucero Quiroz Martin, Morgan Lee, Patricia Sandoval, Patrick Forand, Suzanne Rigsby, and Valerie Ricketts, or take other action as appropriate. Move approval. There's a motion on the floor, cast your vote. Item 64. Did I go too fast? Motion passes. Item 64 is to appoint two qualified individuals to serve on the Mount Charleston Town Advisory Board for the remainder of a two-year term ending January 6, 2025 from the list of the following applicants, Justin Hickman, Janet Mazans, Michelle Moonchison, and Randy Sotero. Commissioner Miller. I'll move to appoint uh, Janet Mazans and Randy Sotero. There's a motion on the floor. Cast your vote. Item 65 is to appoint one qualified individual to serve on the Searchlight Town Advisory Board for the remainder of a two-year term ending January 6, 2025 from the list of the following applicants, Natalie Jeter and Robin Harting. Commissioner Naft. I move the appointment of Natalie Jeter. There's a motion on the floor, cast your vote. And that motion passed. Item 66 is to appoint one qualified individual to serve on the Winchester Town Advisory Board for the remainder of a two-year term ending January 6, 2025 from the list of the following applicants, Thomas Aguilar, Solomon Bradley, Christian Hooper, Andy Romero, Scott Waller, and Brissa Burnell. I would move to appoint Christopher Hooper. There's a motion, cast your vote. That motion passes. Sure's item 67 is to reappoint Joseph Davis and appoint Christopher Stallworthy to the Moapa Valley Fire Protection District Advisory Board for a two-year term ending February 6th. Commissioner Kirkpatrick. Mr. Chairman, I move that we reappoint Joseph Davis and Christopher Stallworthy to the Moapa Valley Fire Protection Advisory Board for two years. There's a motion. Cast your vote. That motion passes. Commissioner's item 68 is to receive and accept the audit report for the fiscal year 2023 prepared by the accounting firm of Crow LLP pertaining to Clark County. Good morning. Good morning. Anna Danchuk, Comptroller. Joining us today is Kathy Lai. She's the audit partner with Crow, um, and she's here to present the results of the audit of the 2023 annual comprehensive financial report. Thank you, Anna. Uh, good morning, my name is Kathy Lai and I'm the audit partner from Crow and the lead engagement partner on Clark County as a whole. I'm pleased to present the audit results for the fiscal year ended June 30th, 2023. Uh, we were engaged by the county to perform uh, the financial statement audit for the entire county and express an opinion on whether the financial statements are fairly stated in accordance with generally accepted accounting principles. And I'm pleased to, re to report that we have issued an unmodified opinion which is actually the highest level of assurance. Essentially, my opinion states that the financial statements 
are fairly stated in accordance with generally accepted accounting principles. So if that statement is unmodified, it's actually very excellent news. Um, similarly, with respect to our report on internal controls over financial reporting and compliance with other matters in accordance with government auditing standards, I'm pleased to report that we did not have any material weaknesses in internal controls or significant deficiencies to report to you today. And last but not least, we did not um, have any corrected or uncorrected misstatements to call to your attention. Um, and before I conclude my remarks, I, I'd be remiss to, if I didn't acknowledge management, um, specifically Anna Danchik and of course Rachel Stevens in the back and the rest of her team and um, Jessica's leadership. It takes a lot of effort to perform the financial statement audit and then likewise to prepare for the financial statement audit and there were a lot of hours that went into that. Um, and then on my team, I wanted to acknowledge my audit manager, AJ Johnson, and our audit senior, um, Johnson Chung as well. So just wanted to express my appreciation for all their efforts and um, likewise for this um, clean audit report this year. And that concludes my remarks. I'm happy to address any questions you might have. Another clean audit report. And thank you, I, Mr. Chair. I would also express our appreciation to those who work in, internal to um, the way that we handle the resources that are the tax taxes that are paid by our constituents. And uh, I don't know, is there a motion to I think, accept, I think, I move we I, accept the audit report? I think Commissioner Knapp was gonna make a motion. Oh, okay, I'll let you make the motion. No, I, well the motion will be the same. I just wanted to say that I, I, we all, I think, serve on various audit committees and I didn't even know that, that it was possible to have a, a report without any findings and um, with an unmodified opinion and just wanted to congratulate you and uh, Jessica, the whole finance team for making it possible. Commissioner Gibson said it right, but it should give taxpayers in the county a lot of confidence knowing that you all are at the helm and uh, that this is possible. So uh, I, perhaps we jointly move for, uh, um, move for approval of item 68, receiving uh, the fiscal year 2023 audit report. And I'll express my appreciation to Jessica and her team. She has done a fantastic job and, and um, we finally have money to spend and we're still spending it right. So that's the best of all worlds. So. If, if I could just make one comment, I just wanted to acknowledge Anna Danchik, the comptroller and the entire comptroller's office. They do an excellent job and this is recurring an unmodified opinion and clean, um, no findings, no, pat, no adjustments. And so it really is a testament to the hard work they do. Thank you. Thank you so much. So there's motion on the floor, cast your vote. That's okay, the motion passes. Uh, Commissioner's item 69 is to receive a report from Deputy Director of Family Services, Patrick Barkley, reviewing the end of year report on the Resource Development Support Unit for 2023. <laughs> Uh, good morning, Commissioners. Um, my name is Patrick Barkley. I'm the Deputy Director of Family Services. I'd like to thank you uh, for this opportunity. I'm here to share the progress of foster care recruitment and licensing. Um, throughout the year, we've... Click it. Um, throughout the year, we focused on improving our pipeline to licensing, which essentially starts with our recruitment methods. 
We've increased the number of individuals we signed up for our information sessions, which is, stepped up, um, which is the first step to becoming a foster parent. But more importantly, we've increased the numbers who have attended the information sessions by 6% since uh, 2022. Our recruitment team is out in the community doing events, working with business organizations that serve our families, and has tested out marketing methods that have targeted uh, remarketing digital ads, email drip campaigns, to ensure that we hit all potential foster parents. We've started to equip foster parents with knowledge and support that we need, they need to make the decisions to move forward with becoming a foster parent. Our department has taken steps to remove the barriers to licensing. We now fingerprint at the licensing sessions. Um, but we, this has removed a huge barrier. And we help cover the cost of TB and physicals for families that um, need that support as an addition. In 2023, we also, it was also a year of transition for the recruitment team. Prior to 2023, we only had two full-time uh, foster parent recruiters. We actually have transitioned um, the training over to Raise a Future, so they're doing a great job with that. And then now we have six full-time recruiters as of a few months ago. Um, with full staff, we've been able to focus on families more in personal ways and we're, than we ever were able to do. We support families through each step of the recruitment process, information sessions, follow-up phone calls, um, sign up for pre-service, collection of the documents and answering questions, and supporting the foster parents throughout the whole process. In addition to a family who signs up for the information sessions, if they don't show up, we do uh, follow-ups with them. Um, we have uh, email drips. We do a lot of uh, personal outreach just to make sure that we can keep the families engaged and when they are able to make that decision, which is a huge decision to become a foster parent, um, that, that, they have, that, that somebody's been reaching out and that they have that constant communication with them. Um, through these specialized follow-ups, we've seen a licensing rate increase significantly over the second half of 2023. Um, from January 2023 to June of 2023, um, we had an increase of, where we had about 13.6. From June till November, we had 17.2, uh, with an average of 14.9 homes per month licensed. Throughout the year, we've worked to build um, build out a broad foster parent recruitment marketing approach. Our top three um, uh, sources were Google, Facebook, and then our most valuable one is word of mouth from foster parents. Um, we also want to thank the media outlets uh, for the news coverage. That Sorry about that. Um, we also want to thank the media outlets for the news coverage that they have provided over the last year. Because of the support, we had an 11% um, increase for sign up for information sessions after those uh, news broadcasts that we had. Um, because of these efforts, we have put into mainstreaming our licensing process and offering fast-tracked fast expedited classes. Um, there, we do these quarterly throughout the year, and we're seeing families going through the licensing process much faster than ever before. We also have um, Spanish bilingual and um, for the information sessions and for the training sessions now. The process is still comprehensive, but we hold the families to the same standards set by the state of Nevada. And we still, um, by the NRS and NAC 424. But we are able to quickly support each family through the process much quicker than we were before. An example is it takes our licensing team um, to make the first home visit. It's cut in half 
It was 32 uh, days in 2022. It's 15 days in 2023. Um, overall, in 2022, it took an average of 95 days to become licensed. In 2023, after improving our process, it takes an average of 50 days. So we've essentially cut um, everything back to about half the time for a family to get licensed. Um, once uh, a family's licensed, our licensing team continues to support them by making quarterly visits to support them and giving feedback um, or taking feedback and helping them through any issues they have once they receive a placement. And that has to be ongoing because each placement's individual and they're gonna need individual supports for, uh, to help them with each child. Um, in addition to the gains in regular foster cares, we have also um, had a gain in specialized foster caregivers. Specialized foster caregivers include our community specialized agencies. Not only did we license more specialized foster care givers, we also uh, retain more than ever before. After looking at the data, we identified the highest number of children returning to Child Haven Campus come from unlicensed relative and unlicensed fictive kin caregivers. This goes to show that our relative and fictive kin caregivers need financial support and resources available to the licensed caregivers. In order to provide this support, we needed to keep and keep these children safely in homes. Our family service team has strengthened our partnership with Foster Kinship to develop the Kinship Stabilization Program to incentivize unlicensed uh, relatives and caregivers to become formally licensed. Um, this program it is a three, has three distinct benchmarks to help um, support them as they're going through each one of the licensing processes. Um, prior to the kinship stabilization programs, the families received minimal um, financial reimbursement and until they became fully licensed. So this support has been, made it easier and financially taken the burden off of the relatives and the fictive kin so that they can um, step up and help us uh, with the relatives and their families. As I mentioned earlier, we've seen the homes, um, we've seen less homes close in 2023. In 2022, there was 202 closed licenses. In 2023, there was 153 closed licenses. Um, we're seeing less people withdraw from the licensing process in general. In 2022, there were 72 families that withdrew from the licensing process. In 2023, there were 59. Um, even though we would like to see that we don't have any closed license, if you look at the numbers, um, the, the majority of it is for adoptions and reunifications. So these are actually um, successes rather than anything else because our number one goal is permanent placement for our children. So if we can reunify them with uh, um, their families or we can get them adopted so they have a permanent placement, that's, gonna, that's success. Will our recruitment and uh, licensing teams work diligently to bring foster families on board? We, our foster parent champions have worked to support and retain the foster parents. Um, the foster parent champions are a group of uh, foster parents that are work, work part-time for the department and they um, are available to support any foster parent that's running into challenges, needs resources, um, needs, uh, they give them a phone call at different points to just to see, make, check how things are going and to be able to get them lined up with any resources they need. Um, family Service also advocated for Urban League to become more accessible um, to our foster families. We strengthen a partnership with them we now have Urban League stationed at Child Haven, so where a lot of the foster families were running into issues with getting childcare set up, we actually have somebody there with the foster parent champions and the um, caseworkers so that we can streamline that and get that barrier taken out of the way. So we can have our foster parents supported and they can 
not have the issues with trying to find daycare at the same time they're trying to help us out with taking placements. Um, at Peggy's Attic, our team works, uh, works diligently with the foster families. Each foster family gets a, um, provides a week worth of clothing and supplies when they initially take a child. Uh, they had 949 referrals they received and they provided supplies for 15, over 1,500 individual children. Our caregivers have received support through a monthly newsletter, the Caregiver Courier. The Courier has a 66% opening rate, and it basically lists out all the resources, supports, and uh, things in the community that the foster parents can uh, access. Um, our caregivers and children um, in family service uh, foster support are supported throughout the year with special celebrations and events. These events are fun for the families, but more importantly, our caregivers get uh, resources and supports um, at the fairs. Uh, Commissioner McCurry has, um, supports our spring Easter egg hunt, which is a huge success every year, and it gives all sorts of support and resources for our families to go to. We have a back-to-school back event that serves over 780 families, uh, I'm sorry, att attendees. Um, they get, the kids get haircuts, backpacks, new shoes, everything they need to be a great, you know, feel like they're a, a child that's going in and has no worries when they attend their first day of school. Um, in addition, the kids that couldn't make it to that, we had 1,500 children that were supported by that program. So if they didn't make it, we made sure that all those kids had the supplies so that they had a really good start to their school year. Just because you're in foster care doesn't mean uh, you shouldn't have everything every other child has. Um, we like to brighten the holiday season for our infants and uh, youth in foster care. We had, a we had glittering lights, which the foster families were all able to go through. Um, the Omega Mart, which 700 children and caregivers were able to go through and experience, and a new partnership with uh, Velocity Esports, which 700 children and caregivers um, went and had fun, had lunch. Um, well, we may take these for advantage or for granted that we can go anytime and do these things. A lot of the times, this is a first-time experience for a foster child. In addition, um, we served over 3,700 infants, youth at the Give Joy Toy and Gift, gift Card Drive. Um, this was an incredible event. I don't know if any of you were able to make it, but um, there were, every family was leaving with a whole set of toys, so every child had a great Christmas. Um, this, this is a great support for not only the kids, but it also takes the financial burden during the holidays off of the uh, caregivers and supports the foster families. Um, and to close today, I want to share the progress we've made in reducing disruptions. A disruption is any time a child or youth is moved um, from their placement to another placement and, and most of the time returns back to the Child Haven campus. Every time a child disrupts, it causes trauma to a child. Because of this, we've developed a new team, the RAPS team. It's wrapping resources around placement supports. Um, the RAPS team works to support foster families so that we can reduce the number of times a child is disrupt, disrupted from a foster placement. Resources include intervention services, referrals, wraparound services, transportation, um, respite, advocacy, conflict management, and just supportive guidance. Um, we're happy to share these trends, uh, that our trends and disruptions have reduced since we've had this team in place. Um, thank you again, and, the, and actually just for your guys' knowledge, a lot of the members on the RAPS team are actually from Child Haven, so they're able to go out and really help the families work with the children when they're, when they're feeling like they just can't get past some of the trauma some of these children have. 
the behaviors are very complex and th they need a lot of support. So we wanna make sure we really are able to have that kind of emergency response and be able to help the foster families through those times. Um, thank you again, commissioners, for giving me the time to share this progress. Uh, while we made substantial gains in foster recruitment and licensing, we still aim to license around 280 additional foster homes. Our work is nowhere near complete, but we ha are improving the processes, focusing um, on recruitment and individual support, and we will continue to keep this mission and develop safe foster homes. And I also want to thank really quickly um, the direction and support we got from uh, County Manager Schiller. This really gave us the resources and the ability to make the changes that we have been able to make and move this forward. Don't forget Assistant County Manager Abby. Yes. <laughs> I was going to say. Yes. Commissioner Jones. Um, thank you so much. I, this is fantastic news and uh, just appreciate you and your entire team for all their efforts over the last year. Um, our comms team for the amazing uh, digital work they did and in, in, uh, advertisement and um, this is hard work and I appreciate the fact that you guys were able to identify a problem, identify a solution and execute it because it's so good for the families and for the children. So thank you for your whole team. Thank you. Any other comments? Is this an action item? No. And thank you to my recruitment team. They've done a great job. So. Thank you all so much. You did fantastic work. Uh, commissioners, next item is to receive a presentation from code enforcement regarding investigations and fines for transient lodging and discuss potential policy revisions. Commissioner Miller. Thank you. Uh, I just want to bring this item forward for discussion and potentially ask staff to uh, meet with the commissioners to explore potential policy revisions. Um, you know, as we inch closer towards legalization and, and uh, of some of these short-term rentals and issuing them licenses, uh, and I, I think historically code enforcement has done uh, a very good job uh, and consistent with the policy direction from this commission uh, on going out there and try to have uh, enforcement of illegal short-term rentals. Um, they, they, they operate off of complaints. They go out and they investigate. Uh, in some instances, they issue subpoenas to uh, Airbnb or, or the, you know, the web services so that they can get a full understanding of how long the operation's been going on and then issue uh, fines thereafter. Um, some of those fines are, are massive. Um, you know, we've seen six-figure fines that they're currently trying to pursue. Looks like we've got uh, about 385 cases currently. Um, but, but that puts us in an awkward spot in, in my position, in, from my perspective, uh, because you may now have an instance where we're seeking to enforce a $150,000 fine for somebody that's been operating illegally, and we're now saying, you know, but here's your license to operate legally. Uh, in my view, that's a, that's a little bit like, you know, uh, however you may feel about the legalization of, uh, of anything, uh, including marijuana. If somebody was selling marijuana and doing it illegally, and you're trying to impose a 10-year prison sentence for that violation, and at the same time saying, by, by the way, when you get out, uh, we, we've got a license for you to operate legally. Um, so, so what are we going to do with those cases, uh, those legacy cases? Uh, you know, can we explore a period of amnesty for them to come in uh, where we, we waive those fines? Is there a cap so that they're not paying $150,000? I think the other problem here is that, you know, clearly we recognize if we've got only a few hundred cases that are out there for enforcement and tens of thousands of these that may be operating illegally, uh, we're, we're certainly not capturing all, all those that are operating on an equal basis. So you, know, you may have one that's operating and we're trying to impose a $100,000 fine and, and somebody just gets off 
without any enforcement whatsoever. Um, you know, I, I'm certainly not suggesting that we go out and subpoena all of those records and, and impose those kind of violations, but you know, I, I think it's appropriate to try to revisit the policy um, on those two instances. And you know, if people are going to be given a license, you know, maybe there is some cap for the fine. Uh, if they don't obtain a license, you know, maybe there's some period of amnesty if they're willing to shut down so that we can get those out of the marketplace. And, and then finally, the, the, the final provision that I think is unjust and unfair is in their current policy is that uh, uh, currently when, when we give you a notice of abatement, uh, the, the owner of that establishment has to pay the deposit for that fine in advance. So if, if it's $100,000 in potential fines, when, when the subpoena records come back from Airbnb, uh, you have to pay 100000 and even to be entitled to some type of hearing. Uh, and and I mean that, to me, that's a policy that we should review and, and potentially explore some changes to as well. So I wasn't clear if, if that's what we're going to do or you want to still have here from, from the, the code enforcement. I think we, you know, this is a legacy issue. I believe that the commissioners have an understanding of what's been going on. I certainly expect code enforcement to go around and meet with commissioners individually uh, so we can explore potential revisions. But you know, I just want to open it up for discussion to see if other commissioners have concerns about this area. I've certainly got you know, a number of calls uh, about you know, extensive fines that are being attempted to impose when people have applied for and obtained. Uh, you know, numbers through the licensing process that indicates that they may be eligible for a license, and in turn, we're trying to you know impose a fine for past activity for them operating illegally, where now there is a, a legal path for licensure. Mr. Jones, um, can I just get clarification? I thought when we went through the very extensive process of determining what the criteria were for licensing short-term rentals, that we specifically prohibited those who have outstanding violations and fines and metro investigations from applying. So I guess I'm, can you clarify, Jim? Morning, Mr. Chair, Commissioners. Jim Anderson with Code Enforcement <clears throat> for the record. Uh, so actually, AB 363, the assembly bill that required Clark County to license short-term rentals, there is a provision in that law that went forward that uh, prohibits us from denying somebody a license based solely on outstanding fines and so that would not prohibit somebody from getting a license. But the, the county's processes that are in place, there is a review of any applications that come through. Code enforcement is part of that review. So if somebody is still continually uh, in substantial violation and continues to operate uh, <clears throat> with, with complaints, then that license would be uh, requested. We would uh, put forth uh, to business license that, to, to look at that and let them know what the issues are and their license could be denied. But it's, it's separate from the outstanding fines themselves. Okay, but I thought, wasn't there a provision in there that had to do with criminal issues from Metro? Oh, certainly, yeah, licenses? and criminal issues as, as well. I'm sorry, that's you know, kind of outside of my wheelhouse. Understood. Uh, yes. Okay. Mr. Neff. Thanks. I'm sure there are provisions that weren't looking at um, and fine-tuning, but um, the calls that I get into my office are still uh, far and away on the other side of this issue, complaining about the nuisance in the neighborhood. Um, and I, I just, at the time when we created this policy, we were pretty cognizant not to reward um, what, my, in my view, was bad behavior, somebody operating illegally. Um, and I would want to make sure that we were consistent um, in that moving forward. Um, 
happy to have the conversation, though. Commissioner, uh, Mr. Chairman, I appreciate the uh, opportunity to speak. I just think that it would be uh, important for each one of the commissioners to receive uh, a meeting uh, to see what's going on in their respective districts so that we can you know, address some concerns, but also uh, make sure that we're continuing to apply um, what has been previously discussed uh, for the complaints that are coming in. Where are we as far as the process to license? So I'm not an expert on what business licensing is doing. My understanding is that uh, they extended the period for people to submit applications until March of this year. Um, and at that point, they're going to review it again and see if they've have gotten enough. I think some of the challenges have been, as, as I understand it, that because of the separation distances required between uh, actual licensed STRs, um, waiting for the random number generator and those assigned in order to come through, you kind of have to establish those separations distances based on the order that they were drawn in and, and, and getting all that paper and, and, and issuing them in order. So. I think we're waiting for folks to get all the applications in uh, completed so they can start issuing the licenses. And the, the requirement that you pay basically your fine before you can get a hearing, is that in our current ordinance or is that in the prior ordinance? Yeah, so, so our current code right now in Title I to, to have a hearing, uh, there's, there's two processes. You either have to de deposit the full amount of the fine or you can apply for an indigency, indigency waiver which obviously most short-term rental operators who own second homes don't, don't qualify for that. Um, and the other, only other opportunity, if they don't want to enter into a hearing, is uh, to do some sort of settlement agreement uh, with the county, which we've done a number of those. I think we have approximately 68 settlement agreements that we've entered into with property owners who have said, okay, we'll, we'll, stop, uh, we'll stop renting short-term. We'll enter into a personal covenant in the agreement saying we're no longer going to do it and for a pay reduction and fines. Well, I, I do think it would be helpful for us to have individual briefings if we want them and maybe, you know, Commissioner Miller come back with, with some tweaks at least, if nothing else. Uh, it does seem onerous to have to pay a couple hundred thousand dollar fee up front to have a hearing on if you, if you think you actually um, didn't do anything wrong. But... So, but anyway, it's, I, I, I do feel the, the problem um, as far as um, lots of complaints is getting from the neighbors, so there, there still is an issue out there, but we could be a little fairer and, and possibly, um, you know, if there's thousands of them out there, there's only a couple that are being prosecuted, maybe that is some kind of disparate prosecution. But anyway, so Commissioner Miller, would that be okay with you if we continue this, have briefings, and then see if there's, we can come back with a couple of maybe proposed changes or... All right, is that, is that clear, Mr. Anderson? Yes, sir. Is that, is that okay with everybody? Right. Great, thank you so much. Thank you. Uh, commissioners, item 71 is to receive a presentation regarding Clark County's recruitment and hiring efforts. Good morning, commissioners. Curtis Germany for the record. Um, thank you for having me back to provide an update on the recruitment efforts for Clark County for the calendar year 2023. Um, Clark County HR is continued to be committed to locating and attracting the best and brightest talent in our workforce. 
And while many organizations continue to see decline in interest in their opportunities, I'm happy to report that Clark County is bucking that trend and did have quite a successful year in 2023 while recognizing that we still have a lot of work to do to reduce our overall vacancies, but we do continue to make strides in that effort. As you can see, the public sector continues to be affected by the ongoing um, workforce issues that are occurring. It's happening at a rate higher than we're traditionally used to seeing even for the public sector. Fortunately for Clark County, we have been able to continue to fill roles. Last year, we filled nearly 2,200 roles. 706 of those were new hires, and we also had 181 folks return to Clark County, as well as all of our um, fantastic staff who got promotions throughout the calendar year. Our positions have continued to increase as far as being filled. So this um, diagram here shows from 2020 to 2023, essentially, you can see that we've doubled the amount of positions that have been filled. We are getting more applications, we're posting more jobs, and we're referring more candidates. And from this slide, you can really see some of the impacts going back into 2020, where we all know what happened in 2020 um, in the world, and so recruitment stopped. Um, job postings really kind of stopped and went quite down, um, and we've been recovering from that. So we've posted a lot more jobs than pre-pandemic, um, so 66% more jobs in 21, 94% more jobs in 22, and in 23, 75% more jobs than we did going back to the pre-pandemic numbers. But you can see that our application rates have not um, gone up at the same rate, but we are finally, to see, finally starting to see additional applicants come back into that, um, to the applicant pool. When we look at our organization and compare it to our local cities, you'll see that we are happy to report that we are seeing more applications per posting, which shows the attractiveness of our roles. And additionally, we're bringing in about three times more new hires into the organization or external hires into the organization. And here, you, again, you can see some of the effects of pre-pandemic of what our overall net change headcount was when you take into account all the various movements that we have the tremendous separations that we had in 2020, including over 400 people leaving by way of the VSP. Um, and then we have continued to uh, make gains on that since 2020. Um, since 2020, our full-time headcount has increased by about 13%. The next several slides I, um, I've really provided here for reference, but it's really to outline our recruitment processes once again and the effort to continue to push those recruitment timelines down. Um, when the position gets open, that's when the effect in the candidate happens. That's when it actually goes up on our job board. They see it, they can apply, go through that process. Typically, those jobs are posted for at least 14 days. Um, these are average recruitments. So an average recruitment for us is about 250 applicants coming into um, the system. These are not including jobs that require academies like fire, um, JPOs, and things like that. Each recruitment has some uniqueness, but most of our recruitments kind of follow this. And as you can see here, there's parts where there's human resources has a lead, there's parts here where the departments really serve on the lead, and then there are obviously efforts along the way where we're con contributing together. Um, like I said, I, I'm happy to take any questions on those sections, but I really wanted to point out you know, our efforts to really um, 
provide for different ways to collaborate with our departments through multi-departmental hiring, tools, training, additional services. And then we're really focusing on our minimum qualifications and what we talk about um, and what we've identified as our stars, which means skilled through alternative routes. So as many of you know, we are, we are seeing less matriculation through colleges, not only here in the Valley, but other places as well. About 75% of our population um, doesn't have college degrees, and we want to make an effort to look at those minimum qualifications to make sure that our constituents know that Clark County is a place for both degreed and non-degreed candidates. As This is helpful both external applicants as well as those who have given dedicated service to Clark County and who want to promote into different opportunities. So we are actively looking at those roles. Um, our, we have an employee referral page. We're doing lots of new things, full cycle recruitment, new web pages, lots of advertising. Um, we're doing mailers. We're, we're, we've got a lot of things going on in the back end that have really led to us being able to process last year over 60,000 applications. So that 20% increase, it really represents about 10,000 more applications that my team processed. And it's a team of about 10 recruiters, um, 40 HR staff and all. And I really appreciate their hard efforts as we continue to push them to hire more folks and, and have set an even higher target uh, for this year. Uh, lots of career fairs, lots of time out in the community um, attending um, public sector career fair that we host and sponsor for our public sector. But our last one, you know, it was a tremendous success where um, we had over a thousand people. And when we started doing this, um, we only had a couple hundred people coming to these. So we continue to continue to get feedback from the community that they enjoy it. We're adding services to it, doing workshops. Um, the next one in the spring, we're hoping to add some resume reviews to that as well and do some things like that to um, make it not only a job fair, but a community event where it really helps our, our constituents. And comms has been nice enough to uh, make a little video clip, which if someone could hit play for me, we will see if this video works real quick. At 10 a.m. sharp, job seekers from all walks of life entered the Las Vegas Convention Center. Armed with resumes, the determined individual spent the next few hours exploring career opportunities in the public sector. I have a great job as it is, and I'm loving that job, but I want a career. I don't need a job, I really need a career for my family. Mary Royball is employed in the retail industry, has applied for county positions online, and decided to take another proactive step and scope out the job fair in person. So I feel like this is my life, this is where I live. I was born and raised here, so I feel like this is all that I know is really Vegas. So Clark County City, I feel like all the jobs here would be somewhere a good fit for me. Mary and hundreds of other people spent time chatting with reps from Clark County and another 20 or so local government entities and agencies. Oh, yes we do. All seeking qualified individuals for vacant positions. Every Tuesday, Job fairs like this one provide applicants and employers the benefit of meeting face-to-face, -face, a personal interaction impossible while applying online or during a Zoom-style interview. I can truly say that it really is one of the most rewarding things I've ever done serving the public. Clark County's Human Resource Director, Curtis Germany, presented a short talk called Reasons to Work in Public Service. Mr. Germany believes working in the public sector is an honor and mentions many advantages not always included in the private sector, including job stability, employee benefits, and a fulfilling experience serving the community. 
nearly 10,000 employees work at Clark County, and that ranges at every job you can imagine. So from people who are servicing the grounds, we have lawyers, we have accountants, we've got a television crew, right? There, if, you, if there's a job that's in the private sector, I think that's one of the messages that I really want out there about Clark County is that we probably need your skill set in our agency as well. I'm a veteran. After 23 years in the military, Anthony Ochoa is now seeking career opportunities to continue his work serving the community at a local level. I'm very interested to go back into like public service, which I think is a great thing to do. Um, and there's so many job opportunities here, and uh, it's, it's just a great idea to put this out for people that are interested in that, that avenue for, uh, for employment. Of course, Clark County is always seeking the best and brightest people to join the Silver State's largest local government. Visit ClarkCountyNV.gov and scroll to the Human Resources page. Here you'll find all current job postings and job descriptions, benefits, and salary information. And you can also fill out a job interest card, and human resources personnel will contact you each time a position opens with Clark County. So I appreciate our comms team for putting that piece together and helping support us as we continue to find creative ways to uh, market Clark County as an employer of choice. Um, lastly, as I wrap up, it is that time of year where we have SBI um, going again. So we're happy to be partnering with the community to offer high school summer internship programs. So if anyone has any high school students and knows of any, um, we highly encourage them to look into the SBI opportunities um, that are available. So just a small plug for the SBI and the team as we get ready for that. And thank the commissioners for their support of the SBI program um, throughout the years. Um, with that, thank you for your time and I'm open to any questions that you may have. Any questions? Mr. Gibson. Yes, uh, thank you very much. Um, for the November Public Service Career Fair, do you have a sense of how many jobs were actually landed as a result of the participation in the fair? So from the Clark County side, obviously there's multiple agencies, but from the Clark County side, um, historically we haven't been able to track that. From career fairs is one of the challenges with career fairs. I often know because people will reach out and say we met there or somewhat online. But um, now if we do have people who come through that system, in the future we do anticipate being able to track their career progress of where they entered into our system and when they got hired. And so that is some data points that I hope with our new technology that we've deployed that we're going to be able to track going forward. Thank you. Assuming they fill out everything and, and go through our process to sign up. I hope you're planning to participate in Mr. Gibson's and my uh, job fair next month. Yep, we will be there. And it looks like you're having a second career as a, either a television star or a, a, or a reporter. Uh, yeah, I hope not. <laughs> All right, thank you so much. Thank you, Mr. Commissioner, I just wanted to add one piece to the presentation. <clears throat> we'll continue, we're continuing to work through policies and processes trying to um, streamline that. I did want to give a shout out to the staff um, just in the terms of their hard work and continuing to try to increase those results and look at where our outcomes are. Thank you. All right. I think the ball is in your court. Um, public, this is the second uh, section set aside for public comment. Oh, I guess, I guess it is my, this is the second, the period for public comment. Uh, anyone wishing to speak on any matter, um, please come forward.
Um, okay, should I hit the green button here? I, I've got you already, so if you're right, watching you like a hawk, anything over three watching minutes. Watching me like a hawk, okay, get that timer going. It's very brief. Uh, I just wanted to make a public comment regarding uh, the commentary that was I'm made sorry, about- I'm sorry, Al, can you state your name okay. for the record? Yeah, my name is Al Rojas. I live in uh, uh, District B, right, that's correct, okay. So up in Sunrise Manor area, uh, <clears throat> over by the, uh, close to um, uh, uh, Sunrise Mountain. So there was some commentary in the newspaper about the um, uh, <clears throat> traffic light, the speeding lights where the, you know, they'll, they'll give you a ticket if you cross the light. And um, uh, I, I wanted to make a comment in support of that. I think it's a fair thing to, to have for two reasons. Um, uh, one of them, uh, uh, there was some controversy on the radio and somebody, uh, a, a next sheriff called in and he said that when that happens, people go drive in another spot so I'm supporting it if it's an area that has above average accidents. Like um, I, I have found that Lake Mead Boulevard, and it's no fault of any of the commissioners, it's just the way people drive around there, that there's a lot of accidents on Lake Mead and Lamb, Lake Mead and Manellis, um, Lake Mead and Hollywood Boulevard, um, uh, and some pretty horrific ones. And then also down on uh, Sahara and Sloan. So, for areas that are high um, uh, intensity, I think it would be a good idea. And the sheriff said that people move to a different location, and I think we can maybe track them uh, with, uh, with, all, with all due respect, maybe like fish in a barrel or control where these accidents are going. But I think it's something that the commissioners should take into consideration. And I can also tell you that when I lived in California, I had three tickets where I got caught by a light and another one where I got caught by a policeman. And I was just trying to f f mess around with um, uh, trying to beat yellow lights. And honestly, I feel that I might not even be alive if it weren't for the, the, that, uh, those lights, because I probably would have never stopped trying to beat yellow lights. And maybe I'm here. I know that sounds outrageous, but you guys have a lot of access to a lot of research. See if any of those commentaries fit in with your research, but I do believe there is a positive element to having um, uh, speed lights in areas that are above average accidents. And you know that we are number two in um, uh, car insurance behind New York City. I've already seen two car accidents happen in front of me in the last week. So, and that's be, uh, not, not during the rain. So, so I wanted to make that comment. Thank you guys very much. Thank you for your- for Thank your you, Mr. Rojas. Thank you. Next. Uh, Lawrence Ruff, R-U-P-P. About UMC Hospital. I was brought in by psych ambulance after a sheriff's wellness check suspected of a dual diagnosis. I was seen by a medical MD cross. My complaint was low iron stores, previously diagnosed five weeks earlier as severely anemic. My ferritin level measured three nanos. My sign and symptom of anemia was shortness of breath while sitting. I was sent from the RMA to imaging and then brought to the outside lobby. No problems as of yet. Outside, after my continuous Loud request for help, a vitals nerve grabbed me forcibly, uh, which is a salt to take my blood pressure after I previously refused her. I overreacted, almost knocking her petiteness over by tearing away. I was taken in the back by psych wheelchair, surrounded by three huge, obesely fat and or tall, uniformed Clark County Sheriff's deputies. I was intimidated, forced to move, and directed to sit down in another chair. This is a violation of NRS 197.2. I am now being 
controlled by three felonious deputy officers acting under the color of office well before nursing arrested me. Spectators grew in number and I hate crowds. Three sheriffs had their zippers in my face and I hate that as well. Uh, I repeatedly demanded the LVPD and the three deputies from the three deputies and I was ignored and all three and taunted by the biggest one, taunted and later touched. I escalated verbally and I was arrested for 72 hours mandatory for the staff's good. Minutes after being arrested, I was taken to the ED where I was strip searched and touched by the largest deputy there. I repeatedly demanded the LVPD and nothing. I was left alone in a green gown, freezing cold, with my behind and my front hind totally revealed at times. There was a toilet and that was it. I finally was given a urine bottle and I filled it. Uh, there was no toilet. I re it reeked of foul urine and no one was around to empty it. RN CMS had told my watcher to not help me. I had to drain it in the sink or whiff it all night. I spilled one liter, I had neuropathy in both hands and feet. They ignored me purposely. Samuel S. in the ED late night and Evil Ombre as compared to the others. The other RNs were mostly just inadequate. CMS started this whole problem. I went looking to him for my notes to verify my camp found everything else along with his malpractice. I had eight MDs for the five days and not one provider looked in my mouth, although they swore they did. That's lying in insurance fraud. I have no teeth. From Dr. William Madsen specifically, I was smugly denied my demand for the police. Madsen, while he smiled, claimed he had power over me. Uh, I better get to the end. Following day, I was administered four narcotics by owner Lisa. In 15 minutes, hallucinations, visual, auditory, many side effects from that. I reviewed the entire record. It's clear malpractice across the system. It's culture under Mason. Thank you. Next, please. Any questions, comments? Anybody want to take my picture? Got it, huh? Good morning, commissioners. Name is Jean Parrott, P-A-R-R-E-T-T, -T, address 1009 Padre Island. Senate Bill 150 that was passed in 2021 session of legislature required that a governing body of a county whose population is 100,000 or more designate, among others, at least one zoning district in which a tiny house may be located in a tiny house park. It further required the governing body of the county to consider certain health and environmental effects of the locations of tiny houses in the zoning districts designated in the ordinance on certain populations and authorize the governing body of a county or city to set forth additional requirements for tiny houses and tiny house parks and to define tiny house in accordance with the definition adopted in the International Residential Code of the International Code Council of its success or its successor organization. My question is, can, can you tell me please if a zoning district or more than one zoning district has been established in Clark County in which tiny houses may be located in a tiny house park? And if so, where is that district and how do we find out what ordinance has been passed to uh, identify the requirements. Thank you. We're not going to answer you right now, but if you we can stick around, I, I will come to meet with you. Thank you, sir. Next. Hello. 
My name is Steve Broca. I am representing Red Rock Search and Rescue, and I just wanted to remind you guys who we are. Uh, close to 200 member, all volunteer team, trained to a national standard, and we are pretty much publicly funded. Um, we're just basically donations and grants. Um, again, I'm just here to, to remind you if you guys don't know who we are or um, haven't heard of us. I would also like to invite each and any of the commission members to our team meetings. We have them every other month at 7 p.m. at our training center. So, and that's all I have to say today. All right, appreciate it. I really appreciate you. Thank you. Thank you. I am Bill Stremmel, uh, residing in Pahrump in Nye County. Uh, one month ago, you received a letter from our Board of Commissioners requesting your intercession with the Bureau of Land Management now considering permits for more solar projects in the pristine desert area south of our town. <coughs> Despite this commonly referred to as Pahrump Basin 162 on hydrologic maps, it is bisected by the Clark County line, so areas to the east are beyond the jurisdiction of Nye County. Together with Yellow Pine now reaching completion, Rough Hat, Copper Rays, and Golden Current will take over 1, 000, or 10,000 acres of land and nearly 5,000 acre feet of water just in their construction phase. All deserts are not the same and well, areas to the northeast and southeast of Las Vegas along I-15 and US-95 are pretty barren. Basin 162 is alive with flora and fauna, many of them endangered. As devastating as surface ecologies of withdrawal of over 1 billion gallons of water from a basin which is not sealed and does flow into the Amargosa, a protected river supporting many endangered species existing nowhere else on this planet. Amargosa, in turn, flows into Death Valley National Park, a destination for visitors from all over the world, most of whom use Las Vegas as a gateway. Referring to USGS professional paper 1863 to quote, Pahrump Valley is hydraulically connected to a 26-mile perennial reach of the Amargosa River uh, which is designated as National Wild and Scenic, directly contradicting the developer's statement in the EIS for Rough Hat Clark. How can this project's sponsors be trusted on their estimates of water usage, crucial for evaluating feasibility in an overappropriated basin? Construction of Yellow Pine required 2,000 acre feet, which is 67% or 800 over the 1,200 acre feet estimated in the EIS. The transportation section of Rough Hat EIS fails to make any assessment of drayage of water likely to be drawn from the same quarries within the town of Pahrump. Let's say for simplicity that Rough Hat is 10 miles from where the water will be pumped, 800 acre feet on the Clark County side is 261 million gallons, entailing 261,000 tanker truck miles loaded in the same uh, empty, all on fossil fuel diesel powered trucks, largely negating the purported reduction in greenhouse gas emissions by these projects. While housing development mentioned in our Board of Commissioners letter relieves pressure on Las Vegas, it is the ecological issues which I would imagine resonate more with you and which compel a coordinated regional approach as to which solar farms should go where. Paving Sandy Valley Road is a regional solution to the transportation of low-level radioactive waste into Nevada's security site, now continuing up I-15 and out 160 through an increasingly populated area. Another regional solution would be Clark County to promote urban air mobility. I'm, I'm sorry, your three minutes are up. Yeah. 
So yeah. I'm, I'm not sure. Are you saying we, you don't want us to build the solar power? You don't want us to take your water? What, what is it you? I'd like you to, uh, to uh, intercede with the Bureau of Land Management to deny permitting any more solar plants. Uh, Yellow Pine is already an enormous environmental atrocity. All right. All right. Thank you. I shouldn't have asked And I have a written transcript to give somebody. I was corresponding with Mr. Uh, Chris Song, of, uh, assistant to yeah, Commissioner. Can somebody Jones. take that? Thank and you so much. Good morning. My name is Matthew Foth, F-O-C-H-T. I reside at 1922 Stewart Avenue, Las Vegas, Nevada, 89101. Um, I've sent multiple emails since January 2nd uh, to the commissioner's offices, as well as gone to the offices. I have been constantly ignored by my emails about the uh, pedestrian flow zones. I went to the office last Thursday to, uh, to see William McCurdy. Um, I was greeted by his assistant, who told me that basically you guys don't read my uh, read emails because you guys get so many emails. Um, uh, since I'm only allowed to state facts, you guys have accepted $10,000 bribes. Uh, five of you have, uh, two of you have not. Um, in addition to that, you, two days after those bribes were accepted, you guys passed the pedestrian flow zones, which benefits those uh, beneficiaries. And I actually insist on the board to resign and a new board should be restated with a special election. I'm done. I'll see you guys at your office tomorrow morning. Thank you. Somebody's. Mr. Chairman, Daniel Braisted, B-R-A-I-S-T-E-D. Thank you. Um, I'd like to comment on this brochure that was handed out by Human Resources. Well done, great contrast and colors, easy to read, and they included their contact information. Now, let me add something. We just had a room, a, a, a chamber that was filled with people and yet, they didn't hand out a piece of paper showing what jobs were open. I mean, there's something about government, you, you've, they seem to forget the free opportunities. That would have been a free opportunity to, to contact this cross-section of people and saying, these are our jobs openings, and this is how you do it. I mean, I, I talked about the Tony Robbins, the free seminar that he gave for three days. And I don't know if the county went or not, but he was talking about how to defuse domestic violence. We have a problem with that in town. The way we solve it is shooting. Let's come up with a different way. As I mentioned, I paid uh, $125 to attend the chamber preview event a couple weeks ago. And we heard the governor, and we heard other great speakers, and we also heard a detailed recap on Formula One, the pros and cons and the must. It was, it was interesting. It was a lot of information, yet I don't see where it's scheduled to be presented to the people for free. Well, the government keeps, you know, you, you had the governor there and you have to pay $125 to hear your governor speak. Something's wrong. I mean, you can do both, but there's no chance to, to hear it. Um, another thing to add, at that event, there were about three manufacturing companies out of all of Clark County at the preview. Now, I know that's a semi-private group, but how are the residents going to know what is manufactured in your county if we don't put them out there? Your, whoever is in charge of your commercial development in the county, they should be pushing, maybe even subsidizing, to have the manufacturing companies have a space. They have plenty of room there. 
where they could do it. And let, let us know what is manufactured. Sure, all they had there was primarily services and government and banks, which is good, but how can we connect and, and help uh, market items that are made in our county if we don't know it's available? Now, I know Henderson does a really good job with their um, conventions and shows like that, but they're also part of the county. Why can't they feature their, their companies in our, in our events? Thank you. Face up or face down? Uh, up. Down? I am Mike Walter, 1325 Los Meadows, 89110. My topic this morning is the school bus stop at Cherry Street and Broadbent Avenue at the entrance to Squire Village Gated Community and we need your help, Commissioner Gibson. The bus stop is in dire need of the installation of high impact safety bolsters, as well as other safety procedures that can be designed by the Clark County School District's Risk Management Department's designers. Every school day morning, students of all ages and some parents stand defenseless with their backs to a cinder block wall on a narrow five foot sidewalk that stands between them and ever-increasing amounts of speeding rush hour traffic on the posted 40 miles per hour Broadbent Avenue. I've spoken several times before you commissioners and board regarding the need for a proper and safe school bus stop at this location and I spoke at the Whitney Neighborhood uh, Advisory Board last week. Last week I took two mornings of observing and taking pictures uh, of the situation of the current bus stop. Picture one shows a brother and older sister showing up early and standing where the bus will eventually pull up to a stop. Picture number two. They sit down and stand in the street as others join them. Photo number three. shows my grandson and my son-in-law with a neighbor hoping to keep their children safe as one of many speeding dump trucks and late to work distracted drivers uh, race down the place. Notice the location of, oh, let's see, now, uh, the number of concerned parents parked in a narrow, in a narrow park of the, of the way into the gateway of uh, Squire Village. Photo five. Show, notice the location of where the bus picks the students up. It unintentionally draws the early students into a very dangerous spot to wait. Today, I ask that you would want the county and the CCSD to do if it were your sons and your students and your grandkids standing out there. Using this antiquated stop as the population and the high speed traffic has increased and will continue to grow along broadband. Now is the time for the advisory board and this commissioners to especially Commissioner Gibson 
in conjunction with the Squire Village HOA Board and the Clark County District to help us get this stopped. Hope you can help you. Hope you can help us, Commissioner Gibson. We need somebody to coordinate it. The HOA doesn't want to do it. The board doesn't. There are other. I'm, I'm sorry. You, I would like you to please help us. Your, your time is up. Thank you so much. Anyone else here wishing to speak? If not, uh, the committee will stand in recess until tomorrow morning at 9 a.m.